SEP Fanfic Readings Presents Measure of a Man by In a Days 22 Chapter 7 The Art of Compromise May 11, 2011 Time passed like it always did, slowly, surreally, yet in a rush. A complete contradiction. A constant presence that was never static. Minutes turned into hours, hours turned into days, Days turned into weeks, and before Hermione knew it, four weeks had passed since she'd begun caring for Narcissa. Yet, despite four weeks' worth of work, she found herself right back where everything had started, sitting in Theo's office. Now, though, it was for her first status meeting. This was not something Hermione had done with every patient, but this assignment warranted the appointment that appeared in her magic scheduler that morning. Today they sat on the sofa instead of his desk, and Theo sipped lemon-ginger-green tea, his first cup, while Hermione had just poured herself a third. His eyebrow quirked, but he wisely remained quiet. The silence felt foreboding, the proverbial calm before the storm. Hermione was ready to drown them both in the sheer volume of words she needed to say. Twenty-six minutes wouldn't be long enough. Theo must have felt her glare, must have heard her mental diatribe in the silence, because he was mere moments from taking another sip when he sighed, like Hermione's mere energy had disrupted his peace. He placed his teacup on the glass table, which made Hermione practically gulp down hers, ignoring the burning of both the hot water and ginger. Her agitation burned hotter anyway. Not that she didn't try to hide it. Her mood was a disagreeable companion that had followed her for weeks, a shadow that grew longer and more distorted as the days went on. Before it overtook both of them, Theo cut to the chase. How have the first thirty days of your latest assignment been? The question was followed by an almost wincing pause. Feel free to be honest. I quit. Theo had no reaction. You don't mean that. I don't, but I feel better now that I have said it out loud instead of in my head. Three hundred and nineteen times over the last thirty days, for a myriad of reasons. Her expression spoke of his experience dealing with her his voice as calm and neutral as his posture. It reminded Hermione of how she spoke to a patient when she needed to earn their trust. Theo had the gall to look handsome in his sincerity. Talk to me, Hermione. It made her scoff, loudly. You sound like my therapist. Theo made a noncommittal noise as he casually leaned back on the sofa, legs crossed, making himself comfortable. Hermione hated both the attractive sight he made in burgundy trousers and continued sentiment of his next words. I was hoping to sound like a friend. A friend wouldn't have sent me into battle with the wrong weapon. You gave me a butter knife when I needed a blowtorch and an army. For all his posturing, he didn't look the least bit apologetic. Instead, he looked interested, far more than usual. I've not seen you this rattled before. Intriguing. Are you serious? This isn't the time for one of your little tests. I don't test you for my own amusement. It's mainly for your self-improvement. That made her argument fall limp before the finish line. You're excellent at your job, but I've wanted to pull you from your comfort zone for quite some time now. I've also always wondered what an immovable force and an unstoppable object meeting would actually look like. I didn't think it would happen quite like it has. Hmm... Apparently I'm overdue for a surprise. Not the time, Theo. I don't feel you entered into this with a reasonable expectation for yourself. 
He spoke slowly, despite the metaphorical steam coming out of her ears, lacing her fingers together. "'Did you think it would be so simple?' Hermione opened her mouth once, twice, but nothing came out. Then a third one for good measure, before shutting it for a lack of complete answer. "'No, but also, yes, slightly?' "'Okay. Perhaps she'd taken an arrogant approach to this assignment.' Recollection brought her past thoughts of keeping out the storm into sharper focus, her high hopes of figuring out a balance with Narcissa, an alliance with Malfoy regarding her future safety plans and preparation, and the possible leveling of her symptoms. She was no closer to any of those goals now than she had been a month prior. Hermione knew she needed a different plan. She had to drift closer, but doing so risked her ability to maintain, disconnected, and neutral— it would test her ability to not speak her piece about every aspect of Narcissa's life that didn't involve her direct care. The problems she'd seen. The growing flames. The fire-warped pieces of Narcissa's life made Hermione uncomfortable, but it wasn't her job to fix them. It was Narcissa's job to use the time she was given wisely. Dramatic changes weren't completely unthinkable, but as a thirty-day objective with a family like the Malfoys, her goals had been impossible at best. And now that Hermione had time to think, she realized her frustration had less to do with the source of her discomfort, and more to do with the fact that she hadn't made much progress, on any front. The Malfoys were still a secretly broken family at the top echelon of a society that praised them for their unity during the most difficult times. Ironic, but mostly tragic. The situation is... complicated. I'm aware. As is the family, which I'm sure you've discovered by now. Complicated, Hermione balked. They're painful. Malfoy is... I have no idea. I'm pretty certain I see him more than anyone. Theo's brow lifted in silent query, but Hermione had no response that didn't involve a full-fledged shrug. Malfoy left before either his mother or Scorpius came down, and was still gone when Hermione departed each evening. Hermione put a little thought into that and forged on. Narcissa's results have also been strange from the start. "'So I've seen from what you sent over.' "'He'd had the time to look?' "'Yes, she declined sharply in the evenings, and overnights are awful. "'Her sleeping patterns have deteriorated. "'She's agitated, and is beginning to have spells where she wanders to different parts of the house "'and doesn't remember how she got there. "'From my understanding, she hardly sleeps, just tosses and turns, "'which makes her irritable during the day, more than she already is.' If she yells at Scorpius's nanny one more time, the poor girl is going to cry or quit, and maybe both. She was extremely temperamental at dinner with Pansy Draco and I last week. Theo's wince didn't go unnoticed, which was why I asked to see her results and your notes thus far. Find anything worth mentioning? Anything I haven't already analyzed to death? No, but I sent a copy over to Charles Smith in Boston. He says you two have been discussing her case for the last month or so. Is that correct? Yes, they had. In addition to Narcissa's attitude, as well as her symptoms, her episodes of blankness and tremors had not decreased like they should have under her the new potions regime. Nothing had increased either, which was the only silver lining. And while there had been several incidents where Narcissa had forgotten her and everyone else, there had only been one incident of accidental magic, when she had apparated across the room. To everyone's relief, no splinching had occurred, but it made Hermione desperate to figure out the root of the cause of her issues. Have you heard back from him? I've scheduled time to discuss it with him tomorrow, should you want to attend. 
He gave her a look that bordered amusement. That is, if you haven't quit yet. Hermione cut her eyes at him. I absolutely would like to be on the call. Regardless of how I feel, I intend to see this through. There have just been growing pains, to say the least. Hermione strived for progression with her work, not regression. The potion should have worked. Narcissa's symptoms should have curbed, and she should have leveled off by now. The fact that they hadn't was a sign that Hermione was missing something important, and that simply would not do. And Scorpius? It was an odd question, since they had just been discussing Narcissa, but she supposed he would want to know about his godson. Narcissa brought him by to see Thea weekly for visits, but that was all she knew. What about him? Merely a question. I don't get much time to see him. He's... At the curious tilt of Theo's head, she had a moment of honesty. I've honestly never met a child like him. She doubted she ever would. Scorpius lived by a routine so unwaveringly strict, Hermione could tell time by his entrance and exits. He was keenly observant, more so than even she'd realized. He watched and waited and listened to everything and everyone around him, hyper-focused and almost anxious in a way that made Hermione vastly uncomfortable to even speak around him. There were many things she had observed, things she had yet to piece together. But the main difference between Scorpius and every child Hermione had known was simpler. He didn't appear to know any better. He was so detached that Narcissa's treatment of him didn't seem to register as anything except normal, so affection-starved that he would preen at each moment of kindness, no matter how small or mundane. So lonely it was almost painful to watch him day in and day out, and the worst part was the sadness just under the surface of each of his actions. It was indescribable, chilling, and unmistakable, yet not acknowledged by anyone. There must have been something open about her expression, honest even. It hadn't been intentional, but it made Theo heave a sigh. You've seen it, then. What? His misery. Theo's voice was low and a terrible penetrating power that made Hermione suck in a breath as she scrubbed a hand over her face. She tried to fight the growing feelings of unease with what was undoubtedly her best weapon. Pure logic. He's not my patient. She watched Theo's look deepen into something harder and more intense, probing, while Hermione allowed her eyes to slide towards the door with the quiet hope that someone would interrupt. But no one did. Per my own rules and conditions, the only way I could do my job effectively is if I remained detached, unaffected, and objective. I'm trying hard to do just that. She turned accusatory eyes on him. If you've seen it, then you do something about it. I've tried. I'm trying. It was the most emotional she had seen him, which stunned her into perfect silence. Narcissa thinks she is doing the right thing, and Draco is... Theo never finished. He didn't need to. She knew the answer. Malfoy was never there. Hermione had an idea from her conversation with Daphne back in March, right before she'd found herself in the middle of her the hurricane that was the Malfoys. Knowing what she knew now, she wished she would have paid more attention, not just to her friend's words, but to the sheer magnitude of the impending storm. She tilted her head, narrowed her eyes, and focused on Theo as fragments of thoughts and ideas gathered. The more Hermione pondered over it, the more everything made sense, the more the pieces fit and the picture became clearer. The assignment request, the personal nature of Theo's involvement. Yes, it had to do with Narcissa and Malfoy, 
but the key to unlocking the man before her was small, and at the mercy of the adults in his life. It's Scorpius, isn't it? The reason you're so invested in her care, I mean. His face cooled into his default visage of powerful omniscience, but Hermione knew that she had read him correctly. Theo uncrossed his legs and picked up his still-steaming teacup, taking a long drink to finish it out before placing the empty cup back on the table. He is my godson. Draco and I have known each other since childhood. Now that she understood better. Hermione was able to pick on the subtleties in his careful wielding of the words. Known, you say. But you weren't friends. Or at least, I don't remember you being close. He wasn't being completely truthful. Malfoy is... Not the same as he was. I know. That much had been obvious since before he'd first said her name. While his mother had been the cause of Hermione's mounting frustration, and the reason for her late nights of books and research and transatlantic flu calls, Draco Malfoy had become the source of her endless questions and curiosity. He was confusing presence, despite seeing him every morning, as she prepared breakfast and he worked diligently on both his crossword puzzle and paper, Hermione couldn't determine which version of him was real and which one was for display, a facade he wore to remind her and everyone else who he was supposed to be, a massive prat. Theo cleared his throat. You can't understand the son without understanding the father. Hermione wasn't trying to do either outside the scope of her job. The son was, well, that was a slippery slope indeed, and the father was... Someone that didn't fit the realm of her current comprehension. I'm trying to remain impartial, Theo. I only wish to understand him enough to secure his cooperation. That's really all I need. A wry chuckle escaped Theo's lips. Tell me, then, how are your attempts working for you? Hermione wasn't exactly certain how to answer that question. Malfoy hadn't spoken to her much after their first face-off in the kitchen, then his office, which had been expected. But that didn't stop Hermione from greeting him each morning and trying to start a conversation. Initially, they had been sincere attempts to try and earn his cooperation and figure out the reason behind the rift. After all, he was always there when she arrived. Then, after days of little success, it shifted into speaking to him out of sheer stubbornness and growing curiosity about a man who completed puzzles with a pen, didn't seem to sleep much, given his long hours, but still made sure he left a note for Scorpius each day. His actions were nothing short of perplexing, to say the least. Draco Malfoy was a man who went on about his day so deliberately it seemed like he was purposely avoiding his family. His problems. Malfoy was like a cliff on the edge of the sea, meeting each crashing wave of her attempts at gathering information with silence stronger than a rock face, scrutinizing looks and strange facial expressions she didn't know him well enough to identify. But that randomly changed on a Tuesday eight days into her assignment. Malfoy hadn't been there when she'd arrived. Uncommon, but not too strange. The minutes had ticked on. Five, ten, fifteen. Twenty minutes passed before he had rushed in with no paper or crossword. His tie had been undone, his hair barely dry. Hermione had been in the middle of making breakfast, but quickly was able to gather that he'd lost track of time while swimming in the pool. Hermione still hadn't seen. It had been uncharacteristically flustered and disorganized, swearing about how nothing was where it belonged, his schedule, and day in ruins. Hermione related so much that her reaction had been instinct. She stopped what she was doing and helped, 
fixing his tie with a flick of her wand, and packing breakfast and tea for him before sending him on his way. Malfoy had been halfway out the door when they both suddenly realized what the hell had just transpired. Malfoy had surprised her with just two words before he left. Thank you. After that, Hermione couldn't say things were good, but he stopped completely ignoring her presence and started engaging, in his own frustrating way, by answering her questions with terse responses of his own. One sentence, then two. Theo interrupted her reverie. You didn't answer the question. Hm? Hermione had been so caught up analyzing Malfoy's every move for the umpteenth time that she'd forgotten what Theo had said. Backtracking, she cleared her throat. Oh, yes, well, I'm not certain how to answer it. I can't say that my attempts are working at all, truth be told, but Malfoy's spoken to me a few times in the past couple weeks. Somewhat. Sort of. Conversation had been stilted and slightly weird, firmly rooted in extremely mundane subjects that carried no risk. Malfoy never initiated these engagements, only responded, and Hermione found herself initially attempting to tailor her attempts at conversation to things he might enjoy. Quidditch had been her first attempt, but Malfoy had struck that topic down. "'You don't care for Quidditch. Don't waste my time. Or yours.' So Hermione hadn't. Instead, she'd taken one look at his paper and mentioned the ineptitude of reporting in the front-page article about yet another ministry achievement, calling it the embodiment of propaganda— when Malfoy hummed his agreement, she'd found herself intrigued. In the days that had followed, Hermione picked topics that were easy to gather from the parts of the paper she could see. The debate regarding the removal of the statute of secrecy. His response, never going to happen, also idiotic. Lowering the age of the removal of the trace to sixteen. His response, I would argue raising it. An article noting the rise of sales on defensive items following the Death Eater attacks in March. His response, Potter hasn't given up his belief that Mathers is alive. He's probably dead. But when Hermione had voiced her opinion about the possibility of a third wizarding war, Malfoy's response had been the first complete one yet. Those with the most power don't want peace. There's no profit in it. Peace would also level out the balance of power and turn the public's attention to the things that matter— such as why the Wizengamot has not restored power to the minister after the agreed-upon ten years. It had been such a true and perceptive statement that it had left her momentarily speechless. It made Hermione curious, made her want to poke and pick his mind for whatever gems she could find. Thoughts, opinions, ideas, observations. After that morning, their dialogue had morphed into chats that became less about what she could find out and more about his thoughts on various topics. They began to do nothing more than just talk for the sake of it, which was unexpected, to say the least. Each conversation was like opening a different box, and Hermione never knew what was going to be on the inside. She knew she had the option not to open it, but she did so anyway. Magical theory, history, arithmetic, charms. Malfoy picked her brain about the fact that she brewed potions, and she discovered his quiet passion for the subject, after a lengthy argument about copper cauldrons versus brass for brewing dreamless sleep. And then he started bringing up muggle topics—literature, science fiction, physics. Hermione pretended not to look surprised. But she was. Some days were like pulling teeth. Others were easier. He would mostly engage, showing hints of something more than apathy, until he'd inevitably realize what he was doing and shut back down— but Malfoy consistently argued down each of her points and rose up to the challenge every statement. He didn't always win, but neither did she. 
and that was different, oddly refreshing, but baffling nonetheless. Conversation was more than a sum of words, more than communication and the exchange of information. Hermione had always found it easier to understand and relate to people when she just talked to them, but with Malfoy? Not so much. Each conversation left her more puzzled than before, less about his interest and opinions, more about the ins and outs of who he was, his identity. May 13, 2011 When it came to paranoia, there was only one rule. It couldn't be considered paranoia if it was real. Hermione reminded herself of this yet again when she stepped out of the flu bank in the ministry on a busy Wednesday afternoon, walking alongside other people into the bustling atrium. While true visitors drifted to the side for their wands to be checked, Hermione kept walking, all while feeling eyes on her. In most cases, they only looked because she was famous and rarely seen in public, but Harry's private flu hadn't worked since he'd become head of the Aura's office, and no other flu was open for her access, so there she was, a face in the crowd. In most cases, like the two workers sitting at the fountain who suddenly stopped talking to each other in favor of staring at her before whispering again, the watching had been curiosity, the result of rumors surrounding her departure from the ministry, or the sprinkle of rumors that had followed her ever since, each more absurd than the last. But in one case, she knew, it was more than that. The wizard who watched her, who had been lying in wait in the atrium, and suddenly realized he needed to walk directly behind her. He had been tracking her comings and goings since the ministry had started sending her job offers three years ago, following her as she went, surely reporting her every move inside the ministry's walls. Naturally, Hermione had been aware of his presence, and he knew it, too. It was a complicated at best, but felt like a game. Well, a game she didn't know the rules of, and without a clear objective. She had no idea why they were even playing it. When her watcher stepped into the empty space next to her in the queue for the lift, she spoke without looking because she already knew she was going to see. McLagan. I was just having lunch with Harry. What threat do I specifically pose to need you as an escort? Technically, since you don't work for the Ministry, you couldn't be roaming around on your own. Especially since you didn't check your wand when you entered. My uncle grows more and more restless when the move's being made to unseat him. Your presence would only add to his distress. I am merely wasting your words on a topic I don't care about. Funny. My uncle seems to think you know about the movement somehow. Maybe you're involved. Maybe you're not. All I know is he's beginning to question people. Hermione stored that knowledge away for later. This feels familiar. Familiar how? Like the history we're about to repeat unless things change. If you decided to return, pledge your allegiance to the Ministry, you mean to him. No, thank you. Hermione interjected with a flippant twist of her wrist. Tyrants come in many forms, and wear many different masks. Or ornate robes, I should say. Her words likely went right over Cormac's head. Not only am I not willing to pledge my allegiance to any man, but I am also not searching for a career change. I'm happy where I am. Cormac made a small, curt noise, dismissive. In his head, he always thought he knew better than anyone. I'd believe you more if I knew you less. You don't know me at all. She kept her public mask on effortlessly, and kept the irritation that accompanied his presence out of her voice. It would only egg him on and draw him more stares than necessary. The next lift arrived, and the queue for it moved, but there still wasn't enough space for her to squeeze on and get away from him. Hermione looked around, searching for a familiar face for the company, but saw none. 
With an internal sigh, she turned, observing the wizard who hadn't changed much in appearance since Hogwarts. Cormac was still broad and muscular in a way that fit his frame nicely. He still had strong features and a smile that could be charming, and his dark blonde curls were still tamed in a way that most witches would consider flattering. Today, instead of his normal neutral colors, he wore plum trousers and a white dress shirt, with expensive-looking cufflinks. Robes displaying his high position in the Wizengamot administration services were draped over his arm. Unfortunately, all that glittered wasn't gold. It really was a shame that Cormac hadn't grown past his aggressive and arrogant nature. Cormac's shoulders brushed hers, and his voice dropped low for her ears only. "'I happen to know women like you very well. I can show you how well over—' Hermione cut him off with a single pointed glare. "'Do you lurk every day in hopes that I'll turn up at the Ministry, or do you have an actual career?' "'Oh, Hermione,' he said her name in a pretentious way she didn't especially appreciate. She also didn't appreciate the fact that, for the second time, his shoulder brushed hers. It meant that he was surely standing far too close for comfort. "'Surely you're aware that I'm set to inherit my uncle's seat on the Wizengamot when he's ousted.' "'When?' Cormac knew something was changing, too. The timing of Tiberius McLagan's appointment to the Wizengamot wasn't important. All that mattered was what happened in the years since he'd become Chief Warlock.' After buying nearly every business in Diagon Alley from desperate owners just looking to survive, he, out of the kindness of his own heart, of course, turned around and allowed those business owners to rent the stores they'd previously owned for a percentage of their annual sales. It was undoubtedly helpful to the couple of years after the war, when some shops went days without a single patron, and people were still too afraid to return to the normalcy of things like shopping trips and expenditures that weren't strictly necessary. The questionable actions came when, after his appointment as Chief Warlock, he pushed through the major rehabilitation project that poured millions of ministry galleons into rebuilding wizarding successes. In Diagon Alley, as business recovered and sales picked up, so did their rent. Tiberius McLagan had made millions. Anyone that challenged their rental agreement was quickly shut down. Percy had been quietly checking into the legality of the arrangements with his tenants, and he'd run into some obstacles. No one who had been privy to Tiberius's unforgiving nature had been eager to cooperate for fear of losing what they'd worked so hard for without a fair fight. Even now, gathering information was a slow process, much like Percy's pet project. While not every member of the Wizengamot was as corrupt as the chief warlock, there were just enough members who liked the perks of the current status quo to keep any true change at bay, in her eyes, they were no better than the ones whose vaults were amassing the unethical galleons. The lift arrived before she said anything else, and they filed in on with the others. She took a spot in front of McCormack, fully prepared to ignore him like the pest he was. In enclosed spaces, it was habit for her to observe her surroundings, and when she did just that, her eyes fell on a familiar white blonde head in the front corner by the button panel. Malfoy. She hadn't seen him in the atrium when she looked around— in fact, Hermione barely had a chance to wonder if he'd even seen her when her gaze was pulled to the open gates as one more wizard decided to squeeze on rather than wait for the next lift. Everyone shifted to accommodate the final passenger. The wizard in front of her shuffled backwards, putting himself too close for her comfort. Automatically, Hermione tried to move out of his way, but found her back pressed against Cormac's broad chest. 
It was instinctive to apologize, but she stopped herself before she could. Best if she didn't acknowledge him, or the current state. Not that it mattered. It was Cormac McClagan, after all. It wasn't like him to ignore a perfect opportunity. Despite the lack of space on the now-moving lift, he was able to lower his head, whispering into her temple in a voice predatory. "'If I were you, Hermione—' His hand ghosted up her arm to push her hair off her shoulder, and her hackles rose until it felt as though her muscles were perpetually tensed. "'I would endear yourself to me, so that I'll remember you when I'm in my new position.' "'If you touch me one more time, McClagan, I'll become the scariest thing you've ever seen.' Her voice was low, serious enough to make him back off ever so slightly. But he kept his head exactly where it was so he could speak to her without anyone noticing. Or hear him. "'Still so feisty. I've always admired that about you. And you're still an arrogant bastard who will be doing the Wizengamot's legwork for the rest of your miserable life.' I don't see following a beautiful woman around on a scheduled visit for lunch with her best friend as particular hardship. McCormack's voice dropped low as he whispered, More like my pleasure. This is why you can't keep a wife. His second divorce was playing out nastily in the papers, at least according to the one she'd lined her chicken coop with last week. Third time's a charm. Before Hermione could verbalize her absolute disgust, or turn around and club him over the head with her beaded bag, the doors opened and a few Ministry employees filed out, still absorbed in getting to their destinations as quickly as possible. It wasn't the floor where Harry's office was located, but at least with only one man entering the lift, there was now enough space for her to step away from Cormac without bumping into anyone. She reached for the strap above her head in preparation for the lift to begin moving, then glared daggers at Cormac who remained in his spot against the back wall, watching her, waiting, like a lion on the prowl. Hermione ignored him in favor of glancing around the still-crowded lift, but now she had a clear visual of Malfoy, who regarded her with an odd, indecipherable expression as the lift began moving again. It wasn't the first time she'd seen him that day, but she had no basis to rate their interaction that morning when Malfoy had asked for a cup of whatever tea she'd been drinking, a fruity mint mixture she'd concocted for Narcissa. Something that, in theory, he should hate, but he drank the mix with a passive look and zero complaints. Hermione had been left unable to discern if he liked it or not. The front page this morning had been around the Death Eater sightings in Wales. Hermione had asked a standard question. Does the task force and the Aura's office have enough people to properly investigate? But this reply had been different, layered with complexity she didn't understand. Not particularly. Potter has a spare team that has just arrived back from an assignment— that he'll be forced to send. I'll just return this morning, actually, and will be taking a port key back this evening to return, once again, the following morning. She hadn't been able to stop her next question. Do you sleep? And that had promptly ended their conversation. Now, the fact that he was looking between her and Cormac in that probing way of his was all the stranger. As far as Hermione was concerned, the end of his curiosity with her began and ended with why she'd taken on his mother as a patient— He'd reserved his other feelings for being highly irritated when she looked on while he worked on his crossword. Finally, the doors to the lift opened on Harry's floor, and a few more people filed out. And if Hermione whispered a trip jinx that left Cormac a sprawled mess on the floor of the lift, well, that was between her and anyone who noticed. 
The gates shut, and the lift left, with Cormac yelling something on his way to whichever floor the lift would stop at next. Feeling proud of herself, and with a smile on her face, Hermione took two steps in the direction of Harry's office, then remembered that someone had noticed, and that someone happened to have longer legs, which allowed him to fall and step alongside her to relative ease. "'Lover's quarrel?' Malfoy's voice was so dry and posh it made Hermione's hair stand on end, along with her nerves. "'Excuse me?' she looked at him in confusion. "'McLagan.' He said it so blandly it was as if Hermione had been already known what she was talking about. His face was drawn in an expression that felt somewhere between grudgingly curious and outright annoyed. Two emotions that didn't even belong on the same scale. "'I saw you two on the—' "'That's a pompous wanker is not, I repeat, not, my lover in any definition of the word.' She seethed with such strong vehemence that she missed the tiny stutter in his step. Cormac wouldn't know how to love anyone other than himself if someone gave him a map and a guide. There was a short pause before Malfoy said, Ah, well, excuse me. He then calmly turned and went in the opposite direction. Unspeakably baffled, Hermione stood and watched him stalk around the corner before vanishing from sight. What the hell? She shook it all off, chalked it up to him being Malfoy, and followed the path into the controlled chaos of the ever-busy Department of Magical Law Enforcement. Pointedly ignoring the eyes and whispers that followed her presence, Hermione forced herself not to look down until she found herself at the door of the Aurors Division. Greeted by a nearly empty office, she guessed most Aurors were on assignment, or at lunch at that particular day. Only a handful were at their desks doing paperwork, not paying attention to the new person in the room. The only person who paid her any mind was the secretary, Dolores, an older witch with graying black hair that always wore purple robes. "'Miss Granger, it's lovely to see you.' Dolores was like the mother of this branch of the DMLE. She brought a meal for everyone at least once a week, and even baked cookies on Friday. Like most secretaries, she knew everything that happened in the ministry, all the rumors, both significant and dull. Hermione had told Harry when he'd been appointed head or that he should always stop and listen to anything she had to say, including the latest gossip. It was more informative than the prophet. She'd been the office secretary longer than Harry had been alive, and she told Hermione last month that she still believed he did a better job than any of his predecessors, even without the current circumstances. "'Lovely to see you as well, Dolores. How is your gardening, love?' By next visit, I should have strawberries, gooseberries, peas, broad beans, and more for you. Oh, that sounds lovely. Can't wait. Make sure to bring extra so that I can make you jam. Dolores made the best jam. Last summer, she'd brought Hermione several jars from the extra fruit she'd given her. She and Al had only eaten toast and their jam of the day for breakfast during his visits for months. Hermione was already looking forward to this year. I can't wait. Oh! She opened her beaded bag, and she reached deep down until she found what she was looking for. I brought you more salve for your husband's knee and your pain potion as well. Harry had found out a few years after joining the aura department that Dolores had been hit with a dark spell, while protecting her muggle-born husband from snatchers during the war. St. Mungo's hadn't been much help outside of healing the immediate damage, which had led to years of suffering and silence. Harry had asked Hermione's help after years of her not being able to find any respite through conventional methods. Of course she'd agreed. After research and a few failures, she'd found success in an obscure plant that helped boost potency for the regular pain potion. Dolores only needed one drop. 
Hermione handed the witch the vial and a tin canister of salve. "'Thank you so much,' Dolores graciously accepted her offerings. "'You really should let me pay you.' Hermione shook her head. That wasn't why she did it. "'It's no trouble at all. Keep looking out for Harry. That's all I ask. Speaking of her best friend, is he busy?' Hermione asked the witch with a kind smile. "'He's just returned from his meeting with Hestia and Mr. Malfoy, regarding the canvassing team they need for that unfortunate bit happening in Wales.' The one Malfoy was spending his nights coordinating while working days here. Her question about his sleep habits had been valid. He's also tied up with staffing for the raid that no one is talking about. The two women exchanged knowing looks and matching eye rolls. Hermione was more worried about the almost open secret getting too far out and failing, but didn't share these concerns with Dolores. Has Harry eaten? No, even though I told him he should. He's had an incredibly busy day, and his afternoon is completely booked. He has another private meeting with Mr. Malfoy in fifteen minutes. Ah, one of their strategy meetings. I've brought him lunch. She held up her beaded bag. Is he doing anything right now? Paperwork. The witch made a face that spoke of her empathy. Ah, the bane of his existence. Dolores smirked. Too right you are. Better go and save him, then. The older witch grinned, shooing her along. Hermione gave her a fond look before walking past her desk and knocking on the closed office door with Harry's name and title etched in the gold plaque. The heavy door opened with a creak that magical maintenance had yet to fix. Hermione entered, allowing the noisy door to shut behind her. Harry's office, as always, was a minimalistic mess. She never could figure out how that was possible, but it was. He didn't have much, a few books, important keepsakes, a framed pictures of Ginny and the children on his desk. Nothing on the walls simple. In the corner was a rack of hangers with jackets and robes on them. The newest addition was a table in the center of the room with what looked like a map, covered in different colored pins strategically spread across the full length of it. Even with few things, though Harry's was a perpetual mess, nothing was ever organized, and he had a ton of paperwork stacked on his desk at any given time. She spotted her best friend sitting behind a mountain of parchment, scratching away at something she couldn't see. "'How can I help you?' Harry asked without looking up. "'Well, I'm looking for my best friend, who happens to be the chosen one.' He looked up, then rolled his eyes, laughing before glancing at his gold watch as Hermione crossed the room to sit at a chair in front of his desk. "'Blimey, it's one already?' She placed her beaded bag on the desk and opened it up, pulling out a simple lunch of roasted chicken sandwiches stuffed with tomatoes, cheese, cucumbers, and romaine lettuce. Hermione made sure to pack some oven-roasted potato wedges along with cold cans of Vitmo, black currant because that was her favorite. Yes, I just finished with Narcissa's lunch potions and she's overseeing her grandson's lessons. More like making suggestions and lesson plan changes. She'd be tied up at least until dinner, when she was sure to sharply decline, get irritable. Narcissa could be downright mean towards Scorpius's nanny, who was understandably stressed at all times. His tutor wasn't much better, but he remained in Narcissa's good graces as he was the traditional sort she respected. Harry moved the parchment aside, giving her their lunch his full attention. And how is that going? Interesting. They're a lot. Different from how I expected. How so? His interest was clearly piqued. Hermione let out a breath that turned into a chuckle as she made a series of exaggerated hand gestures to emphasize each word. I can't possibly list it all during the fifteen minutes I have between now and your strategy meeting with Malfoy. We'll have to talk about it another time. At his nod and Harry-esque soft smile, 
Hermione opened her container and pulled out forks for each of them to use on the potatoes. I can't speak much about her treatment, but I can tell you that she's probably the most infuriating patient I've ever had. She's your Draco Malfoy, then. I suppose so. I often forget she's even sick. Until the evenings and nights remind her. Hermione pursed her lips, deep in thought. Ever felt like you were just missing something that was staring you in the face? All the time. Hermione chuckled. That's how I feel about Narcissa's treatment. The nights are rough to the point where I've considered staying. At Malfoy's house? Yes, just until I figure out what's wrong with her evening potions. Well, you won't have to worry about Malfoy much. He'll be in Wales coordinating the sweep while the Death Eaters were spotted. He thinks there may be hideout nearby. She stabbed one of the potatoes with her fork and brought it to her mouth while Harry started at his sandwich. Does he actually sleep? How should I know? I imagine he gets some sort of sleep. Has to, or he'd be more insufferable than he already is. That seemed doubtful based on hard evidence that pointed to the opposite. Perhaps he was... Enough about him. I'll be seeing him soon enough. A quick frown expressed his distaste, but it was followed by a wiggling of his eyebrows. Have you had any interesting conversations with his mother lately? With a roll of her eyes, Hermione's pensive expression morphed into a grin. She hasn't said anything particularly rude since we tried to give me advice. She emphasized the last word with air quotes, her fork still in hand. Harry laughed almost as hard as he had the first time when she told him the story. She's been busy with society activities and her grandson's lessons. We haven't had a chance to speak much. Well, outside of her complaints about each meal before she takes a bite and finds it remarkably palatable, Hermione mocked in a poor imitation of Narcissa's voice. Sounds like a compliment to me. Honestly, it's the closest I might ever get. Hermione snickered. She'd rather walk on the surface of the sun than admit she likes my primitive cooking. Snorting in response, Harry took a sip of his drink and shook his head. And before he gets here, what about Malfoy? Is he the model son? Does he call you incompetent and argue about the best way to care for his mother because surely he only knows best? Wincing, Hermione recalled the abrupt way he'd left her outside the lift. Actually, no. Malfoy was incredibly hard to pin down. Distrustful and private, aloof and sarcastic, astute and defensive. He was more perceptive of the world around him than she'd expected from someone who grew up believing he was the center of it. More than that, Malfoy didn't fit the image that Harry himself had put into her mind. Maybe he acted different around Harry. Maybe Harry had the same effect on Malfoy as the reverse. Hermione had no idea. He doesn't want to be involved in any aspect of her care. Not now, or as she worsens. I have no idea why. At that, Harry's smirk faded. That's surprising. I've always thought they were close. Narcissa's letters practically sung his praises. Either she's extremely deluded or blatantly lying to cover up the rift, but it's there. Loud. Granted, I haven't seen them in the same room together since the first day, but it's awfully tense. Her best friend still had seemed confused. I'm shocked, really. I mean, he seemed disillusioned with his father during the trial, but he never let go of his mother's hand. Hermione had her own vague memories of the day, now scattered by time and her own life events that occurred in the years between. The Malfoys had always seemed like a complicated yet tight-knit family, though appearances were often deceiving. They aren't, Hermione finally picked up her sandwich. Their dynamic is strange, painfully tense. I don't know how anyone can stand it, how I stand it. I mean, it's not like we sit and chat like old friends. Harry snorted as if the thought were utterly inconceivable. 
but they've had a death in the family in the last six months. Dolores told me of the rumors going around. Apparently, he'll be married again within the year, should his mother have her way. Hermione winced, but she took another bite, her mouth suddenly dry. Might be the sort of contention, but I doubt it. Harry gave a lazy shrug. Ginny says the Malfoys are all about filling their duty to family over self. It's practically etched in stone on some ancient rock somewhere. She sipped her drink, nodding along, even though she should have been laughing at Harry's joke. He finished his potatoes and eyed the second half of his sandwich, sobering. I wasn't working directly with him at the time. They had me doing a lot of public appearances before my promotion, but he was gone for weeks. When he returned, he was just as... Harry waved his hand. Malfoyish as usual. Nothing out of the ordinary. As she continued eating, Hermione allowed her mind to wander, sorting through the data she had gathered over the last few weeks. She recognized the division between the adults as something she would have to address as Narcissa worsened. Who would make important decisions for her? Draco? Yes, but would he give a damn to make the right decision for her? No was looking like the most accurate answer. What safeguards could she employ to ensure the older witch's safety? There would be legal documents and aspects Hermione absolutely needed Malfoy for. He would have to. Hermione took a deep breath. She couldn't let herself run wild on that train of thought, not when there was another that was far more complicated. Scorpius. He was absolutely none of her business, though Hermione couldn't help but notice the dynamic between his father and grandmother as it pertained to the boy's care. Hermione had never seen either of them in the same room together, but Malfoy seemed diligent whenever he wasn't around. He listened intently to status reports from Zippy, set Scorpius's place at the table. He left his son notes. Still, it was Narcissa who was in control of the oversight of her grandson's complicated daily schedule, packed to the point where she had third-year flashbacks whenever Zippy would recite his daily activities to Malfoy. Narcissa was the one who made sure he sat up straight, was polite, and trained, a word that still made her shudder. She treated him so unlike she treated her own son during their years at school that it was almost beyond belief. With her rules and regulations, it was a wonder she hadn't burned the curiosity right out of him. Somehow, remarkably, she hadn't. But like Hermione had already said, he was none of her business, and the Malfoys were a better topic for another day, preferably one when they had chat over the fruity wine Harry had never admit that he enjoyed. There had been quiet long enough to warrant a subject change, and Harry graciously did the honors. Something else strange? No, McLaggen. He usually follows you to my door. Her thoughts scattered before a smug grin curled the edges of Hermione's lips. One less trip jinx in the lift. Nice! Harry looked impressed as he bit into the second half of a sandwich. I suppose that's why you won't accept the security detail, then, Theo told me. Of course he had. Hermione hadn't even thought about the offer since the first time she'd declined it. Honestly, Harry, you know me better than that. I can take care of myself. Trust me, I'm aware, but they're getting closer to us than I'd like. A threat came to James's school. Hermione's heart stuttered. That really was too close. At her wince, he sighed, looking far wearier than anyone should at their age. No one was hurt. The teams came in and did a sweep, but found nothing. Ginny and I are beginning to wonder if we need to move schools, or possibly send James to a wizarding primary school, which would be more equipped to handle the threats of Death Eaters, should they attack. Molly thinks we should pull them out altogether and let her homeschool them. The look on his face said that that would be a last resort. Are you looking into private security for the children? A pair at each school, Harry nodded. Malfoy gave me the name of the company he hired to watch his family. She raised an inquiring brow. 
you two managed to have a conversation long enough to get to that point. In response, he finished his bite before shrugging. I just asked. When I mentioned it was for my kids, he didn't hesitate. I'm serious, though, Hermione. I think you should consider it. As I told Theo, I am my own security. Harry's face turned serious. You don't have to be. They finished eating, packed the glass containers back in her bag, and were busy arranging Al's weekend visit when there was a distinct knock on the door. Two quick taps, followed by a pause, then a single knock. Harry sighed, but it wasn't out of exhaustion, just an acknowledgment that his day wasn't over yet. Judging from the calm and cleansing breath he took, he knew exactly who it was. Malfoy. With a wave of his hand, Harry's office door creaked open, and the confirmation of his statement stood there like a brooding statue in all black. His arms were even folded as his eyes cut back and forth between them. "'Come in.' Harry's tone was far more polite than it tended to be when he talked about the wizard behind his back. Professional. Malfoy entered the office as Hermione stood to leave, grabbing her bag off the desk. Tucking her hair behind her ear, she felt the mood in the office shift with the new addition, turning from friendly to something far chillier. Both had serious expressions on their face, prepared to work. Or battle. Likely both. Still, Malfoy approached Harry's desk, stopping just at the edge. He didn't even try to hide his contempt with the subtle glance at Harry's desk. Potter. He didn't spit his name like he used to, but it still made Hermione shift uncomfortably from foot to foot. He was dry, polite, the product of someone who'd spent years entrenched in proper society. Then, gray eyes cut to her. We meet again, Granger. Confusion flashed across Harry's face as he mouthed, Again? We saw each other in the lift with McLagan. Ah. They stood in awkward silence for what felt like hours, with each of them looking everywhere to avoid looking at each other. In actuality, it was less than a minute before Hermione couldn't take it any more and clasped her hands together. Well, I'll leave you both to it. She gave Harry a look that wished him all the luck in the world. A look that made him scratch his scar, not because it itched, simply a force of habit. Something he only did when he was supremely uncomfortable. Given the awkward energy that blanketed the room, his feelings made sense. Unfortunately, there was nothing much to do about that. Not much more she could say for encouragement. Hermione's focus went from her best friend back to Malfoy, who was regarding her with a potent yet slightly bemused expression. Then he huffed and glared at Harry. "'You didn't ask her, did you?' "'Ask me what, Harry?' Instantly suspicious, she folded her arms across her chest and glared, gritting her teeth. What Hermione hated most—well, after tardiness, laziness, and mouth-breathing—was being last to know anything, especially if it pertained to her in any form. Of course, she could handle it, but that didn't mean she cared to be put in that situation. And by her best friend, no less. Harry patted down his messy, dark hair and rubbed the back of his neck. Guilty. We're developing a strategy for the raid, and we need a third party's opinion. What about Ron? She immediately deleted the thought because he wouldn't be objective at all when it came to anything involving Malfoy. He'd side with Harry regardless if he liked his idea or not, just to spite Malfoy. She would have said as much had the blonde man not opened his mouth. Are you serious, Granger? Malfoy sounded every bit the prat he was at Hogwarts. Weasley's idea of foresight is putting his socks on before his shoes. Hermione found herself suspended in a state of disbelief. Not by what he'd said, that was typical, really, but rather by the dramatic difference between who he was around her versus who he was around Harry. Not saying that he was the most amiable person, but at least Malfoy tried to hold his tongue in his own home. There was also the small part that whispered a reminder that he was the same person who left notes for Scorpius and had politely asked for tea that very morning.
All in all, it felt like whiplash. Naturally, Harry's infamous temper flared to life in defense of Ron. She couldn't even get a word in edgewise prior to snide comments flying back and forth between the two nemesis. But before it could escalate into unprofessional insults, Hermione took the stance as mediator. In a way. I actually have better things to do than listen to you both squabble like children. She glared at both of them, jaw set. So, if we could please get on with it, I'd appreciate it. For her troubles, she received a set of piercing frowns that she met with an equal one of her own. She made certain to exude every bit of irritation she felt. When the next sentence began to stretch again, she huffed. Harry, stop letting Malfoy regress you fifteen years. It's ridiculous. The anger in her friend's eyes instantly died when he finally realized how immature he was acting. His cheeks flushed. One down. Hermione shifted her weight from one foot to the other before facing her last obstacle between them all and peace. And Malfoy, whose expression was stoic defiance. We all know and remember quite clearly that you're a massive prat. There's no need to remind us by posturing. No one needs that kind of energy on a team, especially not when there's so much on the line. You both have common goals. Remember that. As if she'd slapped him, the wizard visibly recoiled. In fact, he took a full step back before remembering himself. There was a very good chance no one had taken him to task like that in quite some time. It was a job Hermione didn't mind taking. She readied herself for the retaliation, but had only one thing to say. Oh, and just so you know, Ron's probably a better strategist than I am, in some respects at least. But Harry was right not to ask him, because he'll side with Harry over you out of spite. I won't. It doesn't matter to me who came up with what idea, only which one works best. She unfolded her arms, resting them on her hips. Don't judge what you don't know. While Harry was good and chastened, Malfoy's glare only intensified at the callback from their first full conversation. But she honestly didn't care as she stepped forward, closer to him, meeting his opposition with a scowl. Reminder, Malfoy, you two have a bigger fight ahead than the one against each other. It doesn't just involve your jobs. It doesn't involve just you as individuals. It involves your families, too. She didn't miss the small tick in his jaw, or the way he seemed to reset. Exhale. Refocus. Now, are you both finished? Malfoy acquiesced with a subtle nod. Harry's agreement, on the other hand, was crystal clear. If you have any other suggestions for candidates, I will gladly step aside as I want as little to do with the Ministry as possible, at least in its current state. There was a long pause while they waited for the last person in the room to get on board. They didn't have to wait long. Since you're already here, I suppose you'll do. Malfoy's response was cool, even though the way his hands were curled into tight fists spoke to his aggravation. But then he flexed his hands, and his entire demeanor slowly changed, shifted, settled. His tone took a professional edge. Shall we? Now that everyone was ready, Hermione got to her point. Is there a blueprint of a strange manner where the raid will take place? There. Malfoy gestured to the table in the center of the room, the only uncluttered surface in Potter's office. His comment wasn't critical or hostile, merely matter-of-fact, so much so that Harry only shrugged in response. He had a point. They were all gathered around the table, Harry and Hermione on one side, Malfoy on the other, staring down at the blueprint with pins that seemed to be color-coded for a particular reason. Malfoy cleared his throat. This particular Lestrange manor hasn't been occupied for at least fifty years, but it's complicated and likely has traps. Its wards can only be taken down by someone of Lestrange blood. But after speaking to several experts, I found that there's a way to trick the wards. Really? 
That was fascinating. Impressive, really. Not only because of the possibilities, but also due to the work Malfoy must have put in to discover that piece of knowledge. Apparently, he hadn't shared any of that with Harry, because her friend's face was scrunched up in confusion, as though he were hearing this for the first time. How is it possible to trick a ward? I didn't know that was possible. The look on Malfoy's face spoke volumes, namely that Harry was too stupid to live. It was one her friend must have been the recipient of before, because it didn't seem to bother him one bit. It is when the wards are old and very specific, weaved into blood magic. The manor's wards were specific like that until... Cursed fire that never burned out. Hermione cringed. No need to dwell on any of that. Hermione moved her gaze back to the map. How do you trick them, then? It's astoundingly simple. Malfoy reached clear across the table to fix one of the pins. The action caused his cuff to rise higher than usual. It wasn't a particularly noteworthy movement, except for the fact that the action had caused him to tease something she never expected him to see on a wizard who wore black like it was second skin. It wasn't just the obvious fact that he had a tattoo, or a very large, scaly tattoo from the looks of it, that wrapped around his wrist and disappeared under his suit. Yes, okay, that was highly unexpected. But what caught her attention, what piqued her curiosity, was the color. She only caught flashes of red and orange and a hint of green before Malfoy righted himself. Hermione looked away when his scrutinizing gaze settled on her, daring her to say something, but she didn't accept the bait. She was smarter than that. Instead, she focused on the broken fireplace behind him. She'd have to ask Dolores to put in an order with magical maintenance to fix it, because Harry would never remember, or have time to handle it. From my inquiry and research, it seems that the ward specialist has to be, at the very least, a pureblood. Malfoy's eyes briefly cut over to Harry. I happen to have found one you both know and trust. Ernie McMillan. He primarily works on the wards for business, but he knows how to do it because his family estate has similar wards. He's already agreed to the job. Hermione recalled Harry's rant about him changing the ward specialist, but now it made perfect sense. The head aura realized it as well, but also something else. Ernie doesn't work for the ministry. Malfoy, we don't have the budget. Technically, he'll be working for me, as I'll be handling his fee. At the surprised look on Harry's face, Malfoy set his jaw, something put off by Harry's shock. I think I've made myself perfectly clear when I said that I was willing to do whatever it takes to end this. Money is no object. Will that be an issue, Potter? She and Harry exchanged looks, but Hermione said nothing. It wasn't her place. The aura regarded the man across the table for a long moment, and compromised with an exhale. It won't. He scrubbed his face several times before running a hand through his already wild hair. Very well, then. Malfoy redirected their attention to the blueprint of the Lestrange Manor. According to the mole, the black pin is the meeting location. Red pins are the entrance points, not including windows, of course. Anything else you need to know before making an assessment, Granger? Hermione looked closer. The room they were meeting in was circular, situated near the center of the manor, and it looked like it could pass for a small ballroom. Four clear entrances into the mansion, but there were five red pins. It looked like there were two doors that served as both entrances and exits. Not much room for escape. For anyone. Which could go either way. Very good, or very bad. There was also no telling if there were any sorts of traps waiting for them in the house or on the grounds. Hermione bent forward a little, touching the only pin that didn't make sense. A red pin, which meant entrance, but there were no doors leading to the outside. What is this pin? A possible secret entryway, Malfoy replied. I've confirmed there's a tunnel that runs under the house, which stops under this room. I believe there's a way to get into that room from the tunnel. 
Ah, that was intriguing. She tucked her hair behind her ear, wishing she'd brought something to tie it back. Hermione concentrated better that way. Harry, do you have a rubber band? They looked at his messy desk. <laughs> Never mind. Her best friend's smile was sheepish. I should clear that up. Undoubtedly. It's fine, Hermione waved him off. First, I'd like to hear your strategy, Harry. The dark-haired wizard nodded. Then yours, Malfoy. She moved to the head of the table, leaving the other two facing each other. Malfoy made a stiff gesture at Harry to start, and after straightening his glasses, he did just that. Hermione listened to both of them. She followed each step of their individual plans, asking questions along the way, while noting that they both had strategies to leverage various advantages to compensate for the lack of manpower. Harry's strategy was very reflective of his personality, simple and to the point. Storm in, block all the exits, make sure they can't apparate out. Battle until they surrender. How very Vini Vidi Vici of him. He had oars, hit wizards, and magical law enforcement officers blended into the group, regardless of experience, with the intent that there were more seasoned fighters would help when needed. She guessed Harry hadn't considered the secret passageway in his plan because it hadn't been confirmed. Malfoy's plan was clever and careful but far more flexible than Harry's, leaning heavily on strategy to compensate for the lack of experience for most of their fighters. It would be easy enough to adjust for any surprises based on their opponents and circumstances. He had the fighters mixed as well, but there was order in the groups, pairings based on experience. Malfoy had arranged for more experienced fighters to take the main entrances, while the untested fighters came through the secret passage. Harry turned to her once Malfoy concluded. So, what do you think? Hermione pondered over each plan for the raid, asking several questions from both to firm up the parts that she hadn't been explained very well. Then she closed her eyes and mapped it all out in her head, nodding to herself when she was done, ignoring them both as they stared at her. Harry's regard was good-natured but knowing. He'd witnessed the sight of her from time to time over the years. He knew how to wait. Malfoy's narrowed gray eyes basically bore into her as if he were trying to figure out her response before she gave it to him. Hermione ignored it. Ignored him. With her fingers touching her chin, she noted the positives and negatives as she visualized, made her final tallies, and nodded confidently. Finally, she had an answer. And? Harry tried again, eyes widened. Neither. Malfoy gave her a thin, testy look, while her best friend responded with bewilderment. What? Hear me out. She raised her hand, looking down at the blueprint. I think the more optimal strategy would be a combination of the two. A compromise, if you will. Harry's right in needing a pack of decisive and strong blows, but Malfoy's flexible plan would be helpful should anything go awry at the last minute. Send teams C and D through the main two entrances, along with E, but have teams A and B come through the secret passage. Your opponents will think they have the upper hand until your very strong teams A and B attack from behind. Hermione lifted her eyes to the man on the other side of the table, who now bore a very thoughtful expression. He was listening. Have you confirmed the passageway? I'm working on that as we speak. Malfoy didn't give any more information. She rearranged the placement of the teams on different entrances. On the off chance that there is no secret passageway, then send teams A and B as a second wave, a stronger wave. Although less experienced, the three teams should be able to wear your targets down, leading them into a false sense of security before the elite teams show up. It's impressive. Malfoy sounded like he meant it, albeit reluctantly, if the frown on his face meant anything. I didn't do anything except combine both of your ideas. It's something you both could have done without my influence. She gave an offhand shrug, noting the growing interest on Malfoy's face as he stared at the blueprint. 
had they put forth the effort to work as a team, they would have arrived at the same conclusion. I can't guarantee it'll work. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. The blonde wizard finished. His eyes met hers in a steady gaze. Hermione blinked, caught off guard, but also remembering the books in his office, as well as the ones she hadn't seen. More to him than meets the eye, indeed. There was color on his arm that also attested to this fact. Right. Clearing her throat, she turned to Harry, who also wore a pensive expression, but he was looking at Malfoy rather than the blueprint. What do you think, Harry? The question snapped him from his thoughts. Oh, I think it's brilliant. It'll likely need adjusting, of course, as we receive more intel. Malfoy was being surprisingly reasonable. I think Potter and I will have to make this the appropriate modifications. It was a foundation. A good place to start. How much time do you have for training? Hermione made a few adjustments, replacing the pins representing the two elite teams. A month. Perhaps a little more. Malfoy believes the meeting will take place before the start of summer. Harry's statement was confirmed by Malfoy's nod. Hermione frowned. There wasn't a lot of time. If we could get everyone together more than once a week, we could run drills and help the ones with the least amount of experience improve. However, we don't have the extra time, space, or... Hermione scoffed. Since when have you really ever cared about any of that? Or even rules? Malfoy made a small snarky noise, which caused them both to shoot him matching dirty looks. You'll have to go about it like in fifth year. Sneaking around to train people? That's... Do you have any better suggestions, Malfoy? Hermione only tilted her head in a challenge. When he folded his arms and looked away, she turned back to Harry. I think this could work. How many people on each team? Eight. Harry only shrugged when he noticed her tight grimace. It was all we could put together. Hestia tried to appeal for more, to pull more people in off assignment, but the Wizardgamot said no. As it stands, the department is already spread thin. The Hit Wizards are at capacity as they've pulled half their ranks for Malfoy's task force. Magical law enforcement agents are splitting their own time between security for members of the Wizengamot. Hermione held up her hand as she drew back. Wait, that's not their job. The blonde leveled her with a look. Do you honestly think they give a damn, Granger? She knew what he was trying to say, but it was inconceivable to her. So, they acknowledge the threat of Death Eaters and provide just enough assistance to where they can blame you both should anything bad happen, but they turn around and seek to protect themselves. Wow, that is completely unsurprising, Malfoy drawled. Harry agreed with a nod, then his face twisted like he couldn't believe he'd had a moment of accord with Draco. Stranger things had already happened, but Hermione wasn't concerned with any of that right now. Only her point. How can you do nothing about it? She knew she sounded every bit as self-righteous as she could muster. Rubbing the back of his neck, Harry looked uneasy. It's a predicament, sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. There's plenty to be done! Malfoy cleared his throat. As much as I despise the very idea of agreeing with Potter, and will never admit to doing this should anyone bring it up. But he's right. What would you have him do? Take on the entire Wizengamot? Hermione shrugged. Not the worst idea you've ever had. It's short-sighted, Granger, and you know it. They'll sack anyone who so much as steps a toe out of line. He cast a glance over at Harry. I don't know about Potter here, but I'm not interested in living the rest of my life looking over my shoulder. I'd rather be on this side of the fight, where I have control. I'm not depending on someone who doesn't have a stake in it to ensure the safety of my family. So if that means smiling in their faces, spending my own money, and working around the corruption to suit my needs and finish this job, then that's what I'll do. Hermione most definitely didn't like it. 
but she resigned herself to the fact that Malfoy had a point. In a way. His statement tickled at the parts of her brain that wanted to say a lot more, especially along the lines of the distance he kept from everyone he sought to protect. But Hermione saved that for later. A better time. Besides, Malfoy, more than any of them, would be a sitting duck if not for his current position. It gave him more than control. It gave him a say in what happened and how it would affect him. And she wondered if that had been his purpose in taking the position, or even starting a career to begin with. He worked for free. "'I don't completely disagree with Malfoy,' Harry said after a brief silence. "'I've sworn to use my position for as much good as possible. "'We've got forty wizards to take part in a raid that may finally end it all. "'That's all I can focus on right now. "'That and making sure I do what I need to to keep everyone I care about safe. "'After, maybe I'll be able to look towards the fight against corruption. "'But right now, this is where I am.' And no matter how much it graded her with just how unfair things were, how insane it was that they had to make that choice, Hermione wasn't self-righteous to the point where she could ignore the logic behind their position, or the order of their priorities. They were both more than their jobs. More than childhood enemies. They were men. Fathers. With a deep breath, she redirected her energy back to the forty wizards they had, no longer fretting over things beyond her control. Okay. Since we're concentrating on this... Perhaps you could schedule weekly meetings with each team and use those meetings for training. With eight people per team, you can both... Harry interrupted the first expressionless. You want me to train people? With Malfoy? Why not? Hermione blinked slowly, genuinely trying to figure out if she'd missed something important along the way. He went through ore training in France. Gray eyes widened before he could guard his expression. Then they narrowed in deep suspicion. "'Who the hell told you that?' "'A bee,' Harry chuckled, while Malfoy glared at her even harder. "'Is that supposed to be a cipher? A name, Granger. I need a name.' She raised one eyebrow in challenge. "'Do you think I'm the sort that would reveal my source?' Stepping around the head of the table, she rested one hand flat against the surface. Malfoy angled his body towards her, arms still folded as he waited impatiently for an answer she would never give. You say you don't want to look over your shoulder forever. What does it matter how I know you went through aura training? I just do. I just know. Are you going to help or not? She held his gaze, emboldened when his glare started to recede. Still, his focus remained on her, head tilting slightly to the left, much like it had in the lift with McLagan. What was he trying to figure out? She wasn't nervous, not even when her eyes slipped from his momentarily down to his right foot as it tapped against the carpet, then back up. Finally, he clenched his jaw. You're especially aggravating when you think you're right. Harry snorted in agreement, which made them both look at him. He was picking his nails and only lifted his head when he felt the full weight of their glare on him. What? You are? Just when Hermione was going to retort, they heard Malfoy sigh. I'll help. Only to help increase our chances at finishing this job, and only if Potter starts being a... How about you both put your differences aside until this is done, yeah? "'I can if he can,' Harry said. "'With that, Hermione took a step back. "'Well, I'll leave it to you both to coordinate the schedules. "'Most of your time should be dedicated to teams D and E. "'If you need, I can create training manuals for them.' "'Malfoy's face twisted in confusion. "'You aren't an Auror. "'True, but I am a fighter.' "'Bemusement quickly crossed his features. "'It was gone in an instant.' I'm increasingly baffled as to why you'd waste your time as a healer when you're obviously good at this particular line of work. If things were different with leadership, 
you would get a lot more recognition doing this than what you're doing now. Harry looked downright shocked at the backhanded compliment, but Hermione wasn't focused on why Malfoy felt the need to acknowledge her competency. She was hung up on his blind eye to the larger moral dilemma in his statement. It wasn't the first time she'd been questioned about recognition, and it surely wouldn't be the last. Percy used to bring it up often, until he understood her reasons, until she explained herself. If I wanted recognition, I would have accepted the job offers they've sent me, but I won't because I don't. I've always wanted to make a difference, and I've learned along the way that there is more than one way to do that. She didn't try to decipher his expression because she clearly couldn't read it. Instead, she focused on her own truth. I worked for the ministry for almost as long as I've been a healer, if not longer, and I found it more fulfilling to make a large difference on a small scale rather than change thousands of lives in a very minimal way. How noble of you. Malfoy's response was dry, aloof, dismissive. That's the thing, Malfoy. I'm not being noble. I'm not being honorable. I'm just being myself. A knock halted all conversation. They all looked when the door opened to reveal Percy, who wore a grim expression. Apologies for the interruption, but the chief warlock would like to speak to you in his office. What does he want now? Harry sighed. We've answered all of his questions. He's obsessed with sussing out any conspiracy against him. Hermione furrowed her brows in curiosity, recalling her earlier conversation with his nephew. With power comes paranoia of losing that power. Malfoy's voice was closer than she'd expected, spoken from directly behind her. His point was true, but Hermione hadn't heard him move, much less realized that he was standing so close. She only felt his presence after he'd already spoken. Had she been a more jumpy person, she would have had a physical reaction, but as it was, there was only a slight uptick in her pulse, a cord of tension that pulled taut. Finally, when she couldn't stand it any longer, she looked. "'What time are we being summoned, Weasley?' There was something about his tone that, well, whatever Hermione had been trying to figure out was lost with Percy's response. "'He doesn't want to speak to either of you this time.' Blue eyes fell on her, and she already knew what he was going to say next, but she braced herself for it anyway. He'd like to speak with Hermione. Everything about Tiberius McLagan's office was ornate and extravagant, ornamented with gold tones and the finest decor she had ever seen in a ministry office. It was fitting for him, a bit tacky. She stood in front of the exquisitely crafted maple desk and was decorated with trinkets and expensive clutter that served no purpose except to remind the visitor of his status. There was a small, blue porcelain kettle with steam wafting from the spout next to her two matching cups. Hermione kept her attention on the man fully dressed in his wizengamot regalia, unnecessary outside of hearings and official vents. He hadn't looked up once from his task since his door had opened for her admittance, calmly dipping his peacock quill in the ink before scratching sounds filled the silence again, but there was little clues that gave away his true feelings, a sense of impatience that told Hermione his silence was a power play. Unlike last time, she didn't have the advantage, but her experience with waiting out Theo's silences had prepared her for this moment. Hermione sat on a chair inlaid with patterned blue silk and padded it with matching damask, so close as matched to his desk that Hermione wondered if it had been carved with the same wood, keeping her body relaxed, as the air about her as poised as confident as she felt. Hermione waited. She kept her hands locked in her lap as she picked up more information from his office than she had from their entire conversation and hers. His posturing and power plays, his attitude and almost brittle impatience, the way he made sure everyone knew who was the leader. 
The fact that he was doing his own work made one thing very clear. Malfoy was right. Tiberius wasn't as in control as he wanted everyone to believe. He was scrambling to keep his position of power. A king shouldn't have to prove who he is. Which made her want to pull him apart even more. She took a deeper look around, paying close attention to everything, gathering information she filed away for later use. Hermione eyed the row of portraits on the wall to her left, all of whom were watching her closely. Portraits of him in various outfits and poses and backgrounds. The arrogance of it was perversely amusing. Tiberius worked on, flipping from parchment to parchment, appearing to sign his name over and over. She could only wonder what he was doing, and she wasn't in the right position to read upside down. Pity. When he placed his quill in the holder next to the inkwell, she knew his impatience had won out. Hermione was ready. "'Would you care for a cup of tea, Miss Granger?' He looked up, long enough to see her politely incline her head in acceptance. His wandless magic wasn't very smooth, but he managed to pour two cups of tea before replacing the kettle on his desk. She picked up one, and wrapped her hand around the warming porcelain. The tea was dark enough to require the milk he put in his, but she refused. "'I bet you are wondering why you were summoned here today, Miss Granger.' The thought crossed my mind once or twice. Hermione wore a fixed smile, small and anything but genuine, but she doubted he'd know sincerity if he saw it. I would have thought our last conversation would have set the tone and expectations of our future interactions. I don't like surprises any more than I like being summoned. Apologies for that. I know you're a busy woman with a new assignment that is frankly none of your business, Chief Warlock. Hermione looked down at the liquid. As I am admittedly quite busy, I hope you don't mind if we bypass the small talk and get straight to the purpose of your invitation. Yes, of course. Have you given any additional thought to my last offer? No and I won't explain myself further, as I've run out of ways to say no that you will comprehend. Very well, Miss Granger. That will be all. You are free to stay and enjoy your tea. Tiberius took a sip of his and dramatically placed it on the ornamental saucer. It felt like a free performance. Hermione was anything but impressed. In the interest of you declining my offer yet again, I've been hearing louder whispers about, is this an official inquiry? Because if it is so, let me remind you that I am allowed to have counsel present. She leveled him with a look. And if this is indeed a friendly dialogue, I'll remind you that unlawful use of Veritaserum, say, outside of an official inquiry, is a violation of Article 2, Part 3, Subsection D of Unlawful Use of Potions Act, signed into law, Miss Granger. I don't know what you're inferring with your statement. Your brew is colorless and odorless, Hermione set the teacup on the desk. But something I've noticed while brewing Veritaserum is that there's a slight sheen to it. Just a hint. Only noticeable if you know what to look for. I assure you I would never do such a thing. Hmm. Hermione folded her arms. You wouldn't. But if you were looking to find out information that you were desperate enough to bend the rules for, my own greater good to obtain, perhaps that would be a risk you think you could reasonably take due to your situation. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't need Veritaserum to tell you what I know, which is nothing. You know something. I just don't know how much. I know a great deal of things, Chief Warlock. Hermione stood up. I have heard the rumblings. I've heard that there are those working to end the corruption that leads right up the ladder to you. I even know you've begun questioning those who might go against you. Tiberius looked nervous, agitated, but he didn't deny any of it. She wondered if Percy's project was closing in on a solution. A word of friendly advice, Chief Warlock. Pick your battles, or you will end up like your predecessors. 
She held her hand up when he rose to his feet in anger. It's well documented that there were more worried about the ministry's reputation than actual security, that they abused their power to manipulate the media, and knowingly vilified the wrong people to give the facade of progress. In the end, it was their undoing. Miss Granger, are you threatening me? No, but you should worry less about getting me under the ministry's thumb, along with Harry and Malfoy, less about me playing the role you believe I should play, and less about the push to restore power back to the minister. Try worrying more about what's happening out there, to the people you want to lead so badly. You can interview everyone you want. You can dose them all to find out whatever truths you seek, but you'll never be able to silence what is right. Hermione started for the door, but turned around. Change is coming, Hermione smiled. You can't hide from something that's already begun. Time is on the side of change. Ruth Bader Ginsburg Chapter 8 A Silent Shout May 18th, 2011 Narcissa looked like a ghost trapped between two worlds. Shrouded in darkness in the garden at five in the morning, her shadow shimmered against the grass, cast by the flickering light coming from the lone outdoor lamp, highlighted by the moon itself. Her silk-white nightgown hung below her knees, the wind blowing, fluttering her gown like a silent billowing flag. Her legs were exposed to the chill of the elements as her loose blonde curls flew around her shoulders. A robe lay forgotten around her feet. From the sliding glass door, Hermione could see it all. Narcissa's face was slack, blank, skin so pale it was almost translucent. Her eyes were milky, completely iced over, like she was not present, even in her own mind. Hermione had been awake thanks to early morning research and notes from her and Theo's discussion with Charles regarding possible reasons behind Narcissa's irregular readings. When the charmed parchment used to monitor her patient's vitals had started trembling, a sign of trouble. She was in the flu in a matter of seconds. The sight that had greeted Hermione when she arrived was not one she had expected. Malfoy. He stood facing the glass door, watching his mother with hands clasped behind his back. Dressed in his normal black attire, tall and imposing, the only thing that was off about him was something she didn't see until she approached his left, a forming bruise on his cheek and a black eye. When Hermione didn't spare Malfoy another glance, already retrieving her wand and a potion to sedate her patient from her charmed bag. How long has she been there? I have no idea. I found her out there when I returned home. Ah, his overnight work in Wales. She doubted that he'd slept, but Hermione pushed that thought aside and dug a little deeper, her arm fully submerged in the bag as she rifled around for the last thing she needed. And how long ago was that? Thirty minutes. Did you try... Granger. The state of my face should tell you exactly what I have and have not done. There was a sharpness, an edge in his tone that didn't land easy on her ears. It was hard to determine if there was anything beneath it because Malfoy's bruised face gave nothing away. He took a step back. This isn't the first time this has happened, even before she became your patient. I'll leave you to do your job. When he turned to leave, one hand was still behind his back, while the other, his right, went to his shoulder gripping it as if trying to massage the tension away. Was he hurt? To his retreating form, Hermione repeated something that she had said to him several times in the last month, much to his aggravation, which she cared little about. I understand you don't want to be involved, but it's not just my job. 
It's her life, and she's your mother. It would be helpful to know your side of her disease. Malfoy didn't stop, didn't react, vanishing from sight through the pained double doors of the study next to the staircase. The drapes went down, and he was gone, leaving Hermione to contend with his mother. Hermione sighed to the empty room, braced herself, and walked out. The pre-dawn air was crisp. The breeze was cooler than she had anticipated, making Hermione's face and body beneath her clothes feel slightly brittle. In contrast, beneath her feet, the grass was soft once she stepped off the cobblestone in her slow approach. In the last month, there hadn't been many incidents, but enough for Hermione to learn how to handle Narcissa better. She knew to remain calm and keep her responses brief. No sudden movements. Knew not to bend to pick up the robe, but use a spell, which she did. Hermione was about to cast a warming charm on the robe. Narcissa had to be ice cold, when the woman turned to her abruptly. Physically, she was unharmed, but her blue eyes were still vacant, lost, haunted. Her lips were faintly trembling, not from a fear response, but because she was whispering something under her breath. Hermione couldn't hear. When Narcissa blinked a few times, Hermione thought she was beginning to come out of the episode. However, the fact that she looked almost happy to see Hermione made her realize that no, she wasn't. They were simply healer and patient, nothing more. And yet, the smile on Narcissa's face was slow and familiar, fond. Maida! Hermione's breath caught in her chest. She struggled to complete a simple task like form words. Every shred of logic and research in her head told her she looked nothing like Andromeda, but that was who Narcissa saw. An image, a mirage, a ghost from her past and a shade from her present. She knew what to do, what she needed to say, but the urge to correct Narcissa was strong. Still, Hermione took a deep breath and went on a trip with her, back to a time when her life was simpler, her mind whole, and her sister was at her side. Sissa! Hermione kept her tone affectionate and light, trying to mimic Andromeda's speech pattern as best she could. Are you cold? When she touched her bare arm, Hermione immediately realized that no, she wasn't cold at all, but impossibly warm. The only way that would possibly be was with a charm. Hermione instinctively looked over her shoulder, almost expecting a second presence. There was none. It's beautiful out. Narcissa lifted her eyes to the sky, her tone light in a way Hermione had never heard her speak before. I think I'll stay. Just a little longer. It'll be morning soon. You should come inside. Narcissa lowered her head slowly. There was a look in her blue eyes that was both inviting and tinged with sadness. She touched Hermione's face with a tenderness that left her incapable of moving or speaking, left her staring into her eyes and stepping closer. Her voice trembled when she spoke. I know you aren't real. I know you're a hallucination. Like the others. Like the others? The word sent a chill rippling up Hermione's spine, rooting her to the spot. But then Narcissa's face softened, tears forming at the corners of her eyes. But I'm glad it's you here with me now. Her voice lowered to a whisper, if only to see you again. Narcissa seemed to crumble, and Hermione had no option but to pull her close and lower them both to their knees in the grass. Narcissa's pain was loud in the morning silence. It tugged and squeezed, carved and molded, applying enough pressure to her fragile state until she broke and shattered under the weight of it all. Listening to her sobs was just as distressing as the knowledge that she likely wouldn't remember this episode when she woke up. Hermione stroked her hair as she trembled, 
placating her with soft words she truly meant, even though Narcissa irritated her. It's okay. I'm here now. There was an ache in Hermione's chest that clawed its way up, a heaviness that kept her from being able to breathe properly. Nothing terrible, just that this memory would stick with her for a few days. Weeks. Months. Her stomach quivered as she pushed down the swell steadily rising in her throat. This was the human element to an ugly and cruel disease that was unjust and painful to watch, but also horrible to experience firsthand. It was a cold reminder that Narcissa's entire life was changing, beyond her control, and there were parts of her journey that she would never remember, like crying out for her sister, striking her son, and God's yes, she was the most aggravating person Hermione had ever treated, but it was her duty to be patient, to be understanding, to be kind, even when Narcissa wasn't. And that was sobering, grounding. Hermione held Narcissa until she calmed, until her grip loosened, until she had enough of a grasp on her own mind to do her job. She couldn't keep the chill from creeping further into her skin, couldn't stop her fingers from trembling as she maneuvered until she could uncork the vial. Sissa, who, who else did you see? It was a question Hermione was scared to know the answer to, but nonetheless had to ask, had to know. Narcissa lifted her head, and Hermione carefully dried her eyes with a whispered spell. The older witch's quiet confession was spoken in a tone laced with an emotion she hid so well during the day. Terror. Those I know are dead. The Dark Lord, he was here. Just as real as you. Hermione swallowed. Malfoy. Distress and confusion started to work their way across Narcissa's features. What little color was there faded fast. She knew what was next, had experienced it once before. The combativeness, the panic, and fear. She knew she had to act fast. Drink this. It'll help them go away. You're not real. Why should I trust you? Because I'm... Hermione trailed off, staring at her patient, scrambling for reasons. She did not want to lie to Narcissa, but she also needed her to comply. Just trust me, please. By some miracle, Narcissa did, accepting the vial with hands that shook hard and bringing it to her lips. The sedative worked quickly, and soon Hermione levitated her patient back into the house and tucked her into bed. By the time she closed Narcissa's bedroom door and asked Zippy to notify her when the older witch woke, Hermione's exhaustion was bone-deep, both physically and emotionally. Her mind was whirring with several ideas about how to effectively utilize the palliative care team, who were due back at the start of next week. It might have been an early on, but the last thirty days had shown Hermione what Narcissa needed monitoring around the clock, and it couldn't be done with her enchanted parchment that monitored her vitals alone. There had to be someone there, someone who could coax her back, isolate the triggers for her episodes, and help her. One for the day and one for the night. Hermione was still thinking about logistics when she returned to the kitchen and found Malfoy placing his daily note by Scorpius' seat. I assume your attempt was a success. He didn't look up, but his voice sounded as tired as she felt. It was, Hermione paused. Do you plan to sleep at all? She had to ask, because when she thought about it, he spent his days at the ministry and his nights in Wales canvassing with the team for a possible Death Eater hideout. Malfoy was, by definition, burning the candle at both ends, and it showed. He was beginning to look drawn, paler. 
His posture and face told Hermione he hadn't slept in days, if not longer. That's none of your concern. Well, he sounded as sharp as ever. No, I suppose it's not. Hermione went into her bag and retrieved two vials that might help him through the day, invigoration draft and a girding potion. She frowned and retrieved a third for pain before placing them all on the end of the table. One's for pain. The other two are for you. They aren't substitutes for actual rest, but you'll become a danger to everyone and yourself without some sort of aid. Hermione would know. She wound up in St. Mungo's after tempting fate too many times. I don't want your potions, Granger, nor do I want your pity. Malfoy spat, so cold and devoid of warmth, it was even more unsettling than the fury that was contained within his eyes. Hermione's fist tightened at her side before she took a deep, cleansing breath and left them on the table as a standing offer. I don't pity you, and I definitely don't envy your life. Take them or not, Malfoy, I don't care. She ran a hand through her wild curls. I'm honestly trying to help, and I don't have the energy for your attitude today. Your mother... What about her? She's resting, and I... There must have been something he heard, a twinge in her tone that cooled him down. Who did she think you were? Rubbing a rough hand over her cheek, Hermione sighed. Andromeda. And I doubt she'll remember anything. His snort was bitter, grating and derisive. Lucky for her. She had looked at him before, earlier, and again when she'd entered the room. But just then, Hermione took a closer look. Malfoy's eye was worse now, angry and painful. The fresh bruise had spread across his cheekbone and blended away on his right temple. The other mark on his left side of his face had been the one Malfoy had unsuccessfully attempted to heal. The discoloration ran from his temple to his cheek, red and swollen, standing out against the pale skin. She felt bad for him, for what had likely happened when he'd gone to help his mother, for what her disease was doing to him, not that he would ever admit it. And when empathy crossed her mind, Malfoy's eyes flashed and a sudden scowl marred his injured features. I've already said I don't want your pity, Granger, and before you deny it, I don't need legitimacy to hear it loud and clear. Taking a patient breath, Hermione waded through his defenses as she took a step after step until there was only a table between them. Forgive me for feeling bad for you. I'll try not to. But if you take a seat, I can heal you. I'm fine. He didn't move. Pursing her lips, Hermione broke eye contact and rubbed her arm first, then rested her hands on her hips. She tried to remember how she spoke to all her cagey patients, but gave up trying to treat him like anyone else when he so clearly wasn't. You're terrible at healing charms, Malfoy, just like you're not fine. He remained unreadable, a stoic mask if not for the small tick of his jaw. She told me what she saw, and who she thought you were. That must have been... I'm not having this discussion with you, of all people. He abruptly left the room. In the silence following his departure, Hermione frowned at the empty space he had just occupied. That went about as well as expected. Then she noticed two of the three potions she'd left were gone. Hermione hadn't seen him take either. The one that remained was for pain. Hermione went about making herself tea and breakfast in preparation to stay until Narcissa woke up. Eggs, toast with jam, and green tea were quickly made, and Hermione contemplated crafting a sensible lunch for Narcissa, who wouldn't even be up before then. As she sat at the island, flipping through a recipe book for ideas, she snuck glances at Zippy, 
as she had done every morning, while he crafted a fine breakfast for a little boy who never seemed interested. For the first time, Hermione asked, "'Why do you make Scorpius such elaborate meals?' "'It is what Mistress wants,' the house-elf answered automatically, voice low and devoid of any emotion. Without prompting, Zippy added, "'Mistress wishes to refine his palate.' That was absolutely ridiculous, but Hermione kept her thought to herself as she watched him seamlessly combine each ingredient with magic before cooking and plating his meal. Another snap, and it floated over to where Scorpius sat each day, charmed to keep warm. Continuing his daily routine, before his return to Narcissa's room, Zippy vanished with a second snap of his fingers, a bit flummoxed when she thanked him. Hermione wasn't alone for long. Malfoy appeared, yes, appeared, as she never once heard his approach, in the doorway while she was placing her clean teacup back in the cupboard. Still bruised, Malfoy seemed calm and composed in that way of his. He held a folder steady in his hand. He had obviously taken the potions. His color had returned, eyes brightened, posture straightened. He'd even had a shower and changed his clothes. The only reason Hermione had been able to tell was because of the difference in the style, material, and cut of his trousers. And his hair wasn't completely dry yet. He'd abandoned his jacket for a black leather wand holster that he'd strapped to his right shoulder, the best position for a quick draw. Perhaps that was also the reason his glasses were tucked in his front of his shirt. He didn't put them on until he dropped the folder on the end of the island. You left these. There was no telling what was inside. In the last month, Hermione had managed to coordinate and organize her research and bought a file cabinet to keep everything in order. But she had research spread out between two houses. My mother's potions ingredients. Something she had misplaced two days earlier. Before Hermione could move... Malfoy had the folder open, and as she approached, she caught sight of the untidy scrawl. He'd made notes, lots of them, in handwriting she could hardly read. Hermione retrieved the folder, glancing up at the impassive man who didn't move. She took a small step away, and out of his bubble before allowing her attention to settle on what he'd done to her ingredients. There were notes on her morning and afternoon potions, which looked more like suggestions than criticisms from what she could ascertain. But on her evening potions, Malfoy circled two ingredients, not grass and dandelion root, underlined two more, goat's horn and hops, multiple times, and had made more illegible comments beneath that. Hermione turned her head to the side to try and decipher, but came up with nothing. Who created the potion? His question made her blink twice before turning her attention to him, not at all surprised to find intensity where most people found dullness. The fact that Malfoy appeared to be waiting for an answer made her more comfortable. I thought you didn't want to be involved. Barely concealed irritation appeared in a flash before fading, but there was a twinge of it lingering in his tone. And I thought that as my mother's healer, you would be astute enough to know when something is wrong. Oh, I know something is wrong. I've known for weeks. The only reason you don't is because you don't care to know. Simple as your evening potion doesn't work. Hermione inhaled, readying her response when she paused. "'Excuse me?' Single-minded, Hermione brought the parchment to her face, squinting at his notes. "'Merlin, was that an A or a triangle? Or a D? Has anyone ever told you that your handwriting is utter rubbish?' Absently, Hermione waved her hand before he could argue. "'Not that I understand your notes, but what makes you think—' The words died when he felt him at her arm, looming over her shoulder like a shadow." Malfoy pointed at two ingredients he'd circled. 
How did you make the decision to use this amount of knotgrass and dandelion root? I felt that Snowdrop would be too harsh on her stomach, and these two were recommended as replacements without diminishing the efficacy. It didn't take a genius to know that Malfoy didn't like her answer. Who told you that? I confirmed it with several potions masters. That's lazy and unlike you. And frankly, it annoys the hell out of me that I would have to break it down to this much for someone who was supposedly so bright. The final word he spat out like it tasted vile in his mouth. Hermione straightened her spine and set her shoulders. She felt herself warming from being flustered and irritated and unanchored, a state of being that, around him, was beginning to feel normal, a feeling she despised so much that the question of why he bothered her had been locked away in a box, within a larger box, inside a metal cage behind a spelled door inside her mind. She turned and found herself toe-to-toe with him. His solid chest was eye-level, so she raised her head, looking at his straw jawline, his eyes behind the frames of his glasses, and his bruises. As far as your mother's condition is concerned, I am limited to what I know, what I've read during research, and what I've been told. This sounds like it's outside of all three. Obviously, a gap exists that I didn't know about. You can't blame me, but you can lose the damn attitude, Malfoy, and inform me so I can help your mother. His eyes narrowed. You want me to do your job for you, then? Hermione fed him back a wide-eyed look of flaming dissent. No, I want your help. If you've figured something out, and it sounds like you have, either speak up or get out. Your experts are idiots. What made it worse was that right now, Malfoy was in her personal space, criticizing her work ethic. But there was the part of her brain that recognized the vague scent of mint, cedar, and something clean coming from him. She would have been perfectly sane had it smelled as horrible as he was acting. She banished the thought immediately, gearing up to take him on. Hermione had never made a habit of backing down. My experts are at the top of their field for a reason. Hermione remembered who she was defending herself against and recoiled abruptly. Rather than retreat or struggle under the intensity he seemed to carry with ease, she turned to him completely, her brows knitted together. Actually, I'm confused as to why I'm explaining this to you as you've expressed time and time again that you don't care about any part of your mother's treatment. Malfoy took a step back. He dusted the invisible lint off his shirt, turning his head in such a way that made the bruises of his face look even worse. Internally, Hermione winced. Externally, she maintained the fierceness that came along with the momentum of her statement, waiting for his response. I don't. There was a rough edge to his voice that made the hairs on Hermione's neck stand up. I just thought you should know, Granger, that while the ingredients are not technically incorrect, the potion is rendered ineffective by my mother's allergy to goat's horn. Wait, what? She held up the universal symbol for pause. I'm sorry, what allergy? Narcissa had none listed in her file. When she'd asked, before their standoff in her office the very first day, Narcissa had made it clear that she had no allergies. The fact that there was, well, there was the anger rising in her that stemmed from the blatant disregard Narcissa had for her own health to keep something as petty as an allergy a secret. Real damage could have been done. Second, that could have been the key to everything. Her irregular results and how she seemed to sharply decline in the evening. She had been practically drinking pumpkin juice as evening potions for the last month. None of the potions were effective unless all three were being taken accordingly. Shite. A month's worth of work never happened, just like that. 
Hermione's mood further soured. Tightened, she shut the folder, placed it on the granite island, and repeated herself one last time. What allergy? Malfoy's expression shifted to something between a glower and a smirk, his eyes still hard. If possible, he stood taller. I'm not surprised she didn't tell you. She scarcely remembers it herself, but it's not lethal. Goatshorn has magical properties that don't work on her, which essentially neutralizes your evening potions, and likely all the others as well. There was a hint of something lurking underneath each word, each breath, that seemed to take pride in flexing his knowledge. Pride in knowing something no one else knew. And how did she note that? Well, she recognized it in herself. When did you figure this out? Last night, before my portkey wails. I found your ingredients list the day before and took a look. It wasn't hard to figure out the problem in her potions from there. Because she's your mother and you know these things. No, because I consult myself and my own knowledge when I want to figure something out. Not so-called experts. Malfoy snapped, but his tone was less caustic and more... Hermione wasn't actually certain. There are several alternatives that would serve as a replacement, but based on your other ingredients, you should add more arca and dandelion root. I've included the amounts on the parchment. There was a pause as she scanned the parchment. He made no apologies for his poor handwriting. Furthermore, you don't need hops in there at all. It's useless. Not at all the binding agent you and your experts think it is. Might I suggest something common like shellac? Hermione was speechless. Malfoy had obviously put more thought into it than he would ever confess. Still, it was the most she'd heard him speak about anything concerning his mother's treatment. A step forward. Change? He was open. However accidental that had been, and Hermione forced back that giddy part of her that wanted to ask him a million things now that he appeared to be in a talkative mood. She kept her tone fixed with that undercurrent of irritation she almost always felt about and around his mother. And him. How did you find out about her allergy? The ingredient was in a vanity potion of hers, too. Malfoy suddenly remembered himself, their proximity, and who he was speaking to, all but reaching out and snatching back the words he had spoken. One step forward, two steps back. After clearing his throat, Malfoy fixed his tie and ran a quick hand down the front of his shirt before taking yet another step back. Hermione allowed herself to follow each step as he closed himself up before he said anything else unintentional frowning at herself for not asking a better question while she had the opportunity. What does it matter how I know, Granger? Now you do. Also, you have your parchment and your solution. Brew the potion with those suggestions and it should work. Fine. She waited for him to say something else, but he didn't. Long gone back into his fortress with high walls. Thank you for your help, however reluctant. I'm just trying not to get punched again. Hermione frowned. How many times has something like that happened? Enough. Well, that was that. Conversation over. Additionally, I found your potions book and left it upstairs in your designated area. I'll need it to brew, along with the parchment, of course. His eyebrows lifted above his glasses. You brew with books? Yes. Because you're unfamiliar with the potion? Hermione folded her arms across her chest, feeling suddenly odd. I brew with books, and even parchment, no matter how many times I have created the potion. It's necessary for error-proof potions-making. Malfoy looked like someone with weighted options. Why? Why what? Why books or parchment? Why do you need directions when you already know what you're doing? 
especially when you've made a particular potion before. Why does it matter, Malfoy? She found herself on the defense. The potion is brewed correctly. He brought his hand to his chin and made a small, hmm, noise, before pulling his wand from his holster and summoning a single vial of his mother's potions. The color told Hermione that it was her afternoon dose. Malfoy caught it effortlessly while reholstering his wand. For a second, Hermione was torn between watching his visual inspection of her work and just watching him. But she quickly settled into some twisted hybrid of the two that had her watching every motion of Malfoy's hands, every movement of his eyes. She took the same breath he did when he uncorked the potion and took a small whiff, evaluating him in some foolish mission to figure out why his actions didn't match his behavior. She couldn't look away. Each week, I've looked at the potions you leave for my mother. Admittedly, your potions appear correct, and the quality is quite good, given the lack of imagination. That made her bristle. They are better than some apothecaries. He didn't look exactly thrilled about having to compliment her, however backhanded. Hermione raised an eyebrow in challenge. Although, it could be better. She didn't take criticism well. Not unusual, but his burned. You already admitted that my potions are brewed correctly, and that they are better than some apothecaries. How could they possibly be better? If you experimented, they could be, but you obviously don't. An echo of the boy he'd once been colored the deep timber of his voice. Something I find very strange. And why's that? I remember you differently. Just like that, the flames of her anger were extinguished. Hermione blinked at him in naked confusion she didn't bother to hide. Apparently, he was feeling particularly loquacious and challenging. His step forward was as confident as her step back was defensive. You've always annoyingly had the right answers. The Room of Requirement, Protean Charms, Umbridge, the Dragon at Gringotts, your house elf agenda. I'm certain there's more that you, Potter, and Weasley ever managed to hide from the world. But as it stands right now people will follow, should you ever choose to lead. I have no interest in that. So I recall. Malfoy's scrutiny was heavy, like a lead weight, his voice low as though he didn't want anyone else to overhear the conversation, which was ridiculous because they were alone. Not only have you changed careers, you also don't experiment. Not so daring anymore, are you? Her fingers curled into a fist. At her lack of immediate response, he probed harder, unreadable eyes searching hers for what seemed like years in a matter of seconds. It wasn't the first time she'd heard those words, but coming from Malfoy, coupled with her exhaustion from Narcissa, they made her wilt. She no longer wanted to engage. An involuntary flinch made Hermione look away and stall for time, or something witty to say before she left. But she came up empty-handed on all fronts. She hadn't retreated from any of their previous conversations in the last month, Malfoy was the master of dramatic exits, but there was a first time for everything. Still, Hermione kept her calm as she picked up her folder. I'm going to check on your mother. She passed him on her way out, resolved to wait in Narcissa's sitting area until she... Interesting. His voice rang out in the silence. For the last month, this is all I had to say to shut you up. Hermione took a hard breath, knowing he was only going to say that to get a rise out of her. She wouldn't take the bait. I am as tired as you pretend not to be. Hermione turned around, using a last flare of energy to make her final point. Malfoy's arrogance had diminished into a grimace. 
Don't underestimate me, Malfoy. I am still quite daring, but I don't expend energy to experiment unless I absolutely have to. Until I have a reason, and right now, I don't. Also, you speak of who I was when the only reason I did any of it was because it was right, and also I did it all to help Harry. My job is done in that aspect. Perhaps, but you're a healer now. I should think that improving the potions you provide your patients warrants experimentation. The potions work, or they would have. Your mother's undisclosed allergy is the cause of all this, but that doesn't negate anything else. When that's fixed, they will work. Why would I try to fix something that isn't broken? Just because something isn't broken doesn't mean you've achieved optimal results. How would you even know? You haven't experimented enough to ascertain if something is broken or not. I believe knowledge is about the pursuit of truth, rather than convenient applications. There is always room for improvement. That can be said about people as well. He flinched, and it was more dramatic with the bruising on his face, but he recovered quickly. Ah, yes, people. His drawl made her tense, made her want her wand in her hand, but she squeezed her empty fist tighter. You think you know us all so well, don't you? One could argue with your assessment of my character that you're the same way. Malfoy scoffed. Don't waste my time with your we're-so-alike bullshit. We're not. I never said we're alike. I, for the last month, I've listened to your rhetoric, your opinions about different topics, your deep-seated wish to make the world a better place one person, one interaction at a time. It's all bullshit, idealistic, but I'll bite. On the original subject of experimentation, how can you strive for a better world when you won't experiment? When you won't let yourself try something new. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. His words lit a fire inside of Hermione, a call to arms to defend herself. All thoughts of abandoning the conversation vanished like smoke in the breeze. She readied herself. First, I don't expect different results. I expect the correct ones. Malfoy folded his arms. Second, it's not all bullshit. People aren't wired to care about anyone except themselves, their inner circle of family and friends, and anyone that serves a purpose to them. Humans are inherently self-centered, greedy, and self-seeking. Every single thing we do, we do to serve the interest of our own. She took a step towards him. People are not inherently anything but human. However, your pessimism doesn't surprise me. I'm a realist, Granger, and you may say all the right things, but you're no different than anyone. Your work appears to be altruism when you're driven by your desire to feel good about yourself, to look good in the eyes of others, and to remain consistent with your principles. Your selfishness may take a different form, but in the end, you're just like everyone else. You have no idea who I am, or the work I do. His expression didn't change, but she detected a flash of something in his eyes. I know enough about your work, not about anything else. But your make-a-larger-impact-on-smaller-scale view is flawed by your behavior. In order to incite the change you talk about, you have to be willing to make alterations and modifications to existing solutions. You have to keep pushing. You can't be as complacent as you are, dependent on your existing knowledge. Hermione shifted her weight from foot to foot. You quoted Einstein before when you said, Your bias is showing. Malfoy looked more annoyed than disappointed. She huffed, not in anger, 
but because Hermione found herself flustered and it aggravated the hell out of her. No, it's not. As I was saying, if you want to quote Einstein, then he also said that problems cannot be solved when the same mindset that created them. You think my beliefs are bullshit, but you haven't expressed your own on the matter. You don't care to hear my views. I wouldn't have said anything if I didn't. She approached him slowly, like one would a wild cat, his eyes heavy on her, tensing more and more with each step she took. But Malfoy didn't back away, didn't back down, not even when she stood right in front of him. It's so easy to criticize when you do nothing. So we should all be like you, then, solving the world's problems one at a time. With a curt frown, he folded his arms across his chest, and for a second, Hermione's eyes drifted to the sleeve of his shirt, remembering the splashes of color her curiosity wouldn't let her forget. Malfoy abruptly dropped his arms in a move that drew her attention back to him, back to his statement. I'm not surprised you've misinterpreted my statement. We cannot solve the world's problems. I've never once put that responsibility on my shoulders. I'm only one person, as are you. I merely said that I'd rather make significant changes on a smaller scale. They're more impactful that way. And change always ripples out. Furthermore, I believe it's our duty as humans to leave this world better than we found it, however we can. And that's what I intend to do, in my own way. Starting here. Hermione lifted on the tips of her toes and whispered a healing charm. Malfoy braced one hand on the granite and inhaled sharply, likely to argue. But his words were dead on arrival. Hermione worked, her fingers hovering over his healing skin as she murmured another spell. But the weight of his gaze remained heavy, piercing, hard to ignore, hard to decipher. But tension seemed to bleed from him as the magic took hold as the pain he'd never confessed to feeling began to recede. Seconds passed, but felt far longer, before his bruises completely faded, healed, and vanished into nothing except flawless skin. That is how I am wired, she said in a near whisper as she lowered herself back onto the soles of her toes, touched the wooden floor again. His eyes followed her action, followed her. They exhaled simultaneously, Hermione felt strange and untethered, but not disoriented enough to stop her from making her point. I'm not perfectly altruistic, but I am wired to care about people. I'm wired to help any and everyone I can, even you. And for someone who doesn't give a damn, you've obviously put a lot of thought into my character. That woke him from his trance. His eyes hardened. Just as I assume you having these daily discussions with me are to determine mine. Have you got your answers, then? No. He was so cagey, so defensive, it would take a thousand conversations to understand him, and more energy than she had time to expend. Malfoy gave her an odd look before checking his watch. Hermione glanced at the clock behind him. It was just past seven. Time for him to leave. With just enough time to be gone before Narcissa's normal arrival— though today she'd be having a lion. But Scorpius. Malfoy didn't say goodbye. He never did. He simply sidestepped her on his way out. The only difference today was the fact that he repeatedly ran a rough hand through his hair, messing it up, then shook his head as he approached the threshold of the kitchen that would lead him in the direction of his office to flew into work. He was off to continue his schedule, working a job he never got paid for, while she remained to do hers all the while noticing the little things that weren't her business, 
but kept the flames of curiosity flickering. One in particular? Scorpius looks for you every morning without fail. Malfoy paused just inside the arch of the doorway. She could see the wave of tension in the rise and fall of his shoulders, the flex of his hands, the rigid line of his posture, his audible breath. I thought you should know. He continued on. Hermione considered being there when Narcissa woke, but she wasn't. She needed the rest, as did the staff. After deciphering Malfoy's handwriting, researching alternatives all morning in her office, and checking everything over with her experts first, who seemed impressed by Malfoy's suggestions, Hermione reached out to Neville to see if he had the herbs in his greenhouse. He did, thankfully, already dried. Perfect. From there, Hermione fed the chickens table scraps and took her frustration out on the weeds in her herb garden. She watered everything in the greenhouse and made notes on how the arca plant was growing for Neville. It had grown. Not much, but just enough. With mostly everything done, Hermione treated herself to an early lunch and a book when she found herself hungry just before eleven. But after finishing her sandwich in two chapters, that mounting frustration returned, distracting her to the point that she was reading pages twice, which was how she found herself in her brewing room with a trusty book on the stand, making a batch for the evening potion for Narcissa. Pretty soon, everything was chopped, diced, minced, sorted, and added with flicks of her wrist into the bubbling cauldron. The flames were low, just like they should be. Everything just as Malfoy had directed in the horrid handwriting she was beginning to decode. Perfect. It took Hermione a little longer than usual to focus. A little longer to settle. More effort to clear her mind. Brewing was as difficult as it could be calming, but today Hermione found herself agitated. It had something to do with the earworm that stuck with her from her conversation with Malfoy. It wasn't that she couldn't brew without books. She could. But there was comfort in the action, in the routine. She always set a text up on the stand, flipped to the right page, and started from the beginning, looking on as she went. There was familiarity in the habit. Hermione wasn't exactly passionate about potions or cooking, despite having a room dedicated to each craft. She cooked and brewed potions mainly for others, but the joy she got in it wasn't just the fact that she could help them. It had to do with the residual part of the child in her that loved the act of following directions. Hermione liked the order in it, the stability. She liked the process of making something that, in truth, didn't require a lot of talent to produce. And the bit about not experimenting? Well, there was no need for any other project. Everything had worked as it should through an extensive amount of research and the consultation of experts. It made no sense to change something that had been proven to work. No need to change the written word. That went for Narcissa's case as well. The readjustment to her evening potion had taken little effort, just a tweak. Right now, the brew looked as he'd described on the corners of the parchment. What did he want her to do? Adjust the entire thing? That made no sense. Banishing the thought to the corner of her mind, Hermione inhaled and exhaled before allowing his words to roll off her shoulders into a heap around her feet. And then she did things her way. The proper amounts of time passed before the potion exuded its faint purple smoke, indicating completion. And after bottling it into seven vials, a glance at the wall made her frown. It was nearly one. Narcissa should be up soon, and they needed to talk. That mood followed her back into Malfoy's residence, where she stocked the new evening potions and disposed of the old ones. When Hermione went back to check on Narcissa, Zippy was stationed outside her door, watchful. Has she woken up? 
Mistress continues to sleep peacefully. Please get me when she wakes, and if she isn't up in an hour, please come get me anyway. I'll be around here. Yes, miss. With a friendly nod at the house-elf, who seemed eager to follow her command, she left the way she'd entered, walking through Narcissa's private sitting area. The room was decorated in her ornate traditional style, the only part of the house embellished in such a manner, a symbol of the room being strictly hers, like Malfoy's office. Hermione had options to pass the time. She had research to review and notes to continue drafting on her day-to-day care for Narcissa's case study. There was a smaller study upstairs, right next door to where Scorpius's tutor conducted lessons, which had been cleared after the disastrous first day. Hermione was headed there when she spotted something strange in the living room. Someone who had drifted off course from his schedule. Scorpius. Standing by the glass door, with his back to her as he stared out into the empty garden, he pressed one hand on the glass that was sure to leave a smudge for Zippy to clean. It was the loneliest sight Hermione had ever seen. After backing away, she went on the hunt for his nanny. Scorpius' location didn't quite line up with his schedule she had all but learned. Hermione found Catherine in the library where his tutoring sessions took place with the tutor himself. She was helping him tune a stubborn piano for music lessons. Hermione asked if either of them had noticed that their pupil had left. It's fine. I'll find him when we're ready to get started. It sounded like something she had done before, something she had great experience with. Oh, I know where he is. The tutor pressed a key on the piano, and, though not musically inclined, it still sounded wrong to Hermione's ear. Can you keep an eye on him until we finish? Hermione almost said something much different from her actual response, which was, of course. When she returned, she found Scorpius in the same place, his hand still on the glass. What he was looking at, or for, Hermione had no idea. She stood next to him to see if she could figure it out, but all she did was alert him to her presence. He looked up at her not startled or scared, just blank. Staring had been their default for the last month. He did it at breakfast, and the occasional lunch when Narcissa would request his presence. Scorpius looked on as she asked Narcissa for battery of questions, something she tried not to do in his presence, but Narcissa didn't specially care. It was innocent, really, if a little unnerving, but it changed when Hermione started moving the glass of his juice from his right to his left. The original reason had been so he would stop accidentally reaching for Narcissus, but after that day, Scorpius began watching her differently. It was hard to explain. His routine was set in stone. Whenever he entered the kitchen, he would look around for his father. Then, after his spell of disappointment, his eyes would fall on her. Only her. And he would watch Hermione through his grandmother's initial directions, to the point where she was certain if he tested, he would never remember what she said. Scorpius would watch her throughout breakfast, but wouldn't touch his juice until she moved it from the right to the left. And after a few days of that, he even started looking back at her whenever he was sent to lessons. The first time Hermione waved, he'd nearly walked into a wall. Her second instinct had been to chuckle, which was quickly overridden by her first, to make sure he was okay. But Scorpius just blushed and walked away. She didn't hear Narcissa's first comment about his behavior, but she had heard her aggravated sigh. That boy. Today was different, and it likely had to do with his appearance, when and where he shouldn't have been. Scorpius stared at her for long enough that Hermione started a conversation to break the silence. Do you want to go outside? It was overcast, breezy, and would rain soon, but perhaps it would hold out long enough for Scorpius to get the fresh air he likely needed. The nod he gave in response was as hesitant as expected. That uncertainty extended even after she opened the door, 
allowing a gust of wind to blow in his hair askance. In fact, Hermione had to walk out first before he tentatively followed. Feels good, yes? Scorpius didn't agree, and it wasn't much more than a few wind gusts later that Hermione followed him back inside where he sat in front of the window, fixed his hair, and watched. He was more content to observe rather than experience the weather for himself, at least the wind. Odd for a child his age, but it made sense anyway. Having nothing better to do, Hermione joined him, folding her legs comfortably, just like his. As it turned out, the rain didn't stay away. Darkening clouds continued to roll in, and soon droplets hit the glass pane in a slow, rhythmic beat that quickened as the storm barreled overhead. Hermione glanced over at Scorpius and found him looking at her curiously. A soft smile developed where none had been before. "'You really remind me of your dad, only you don't scowl as much as he did.' Scorpius perked up, scooting closer to her, eager to hear more about his father. Hermione felt lightheaded. "'Your dad... you want to know more about him?' Scorpius nodded, jittering in the way children got when they were stifling excitement. Dread rose in her chest as she rubbed the back of her neck, patting down her frizz with several strokes. Hermione struggled to find the words. What could she tell Scorpius Malfoy about his father? In school, he had been a spoiled bully, a bigot, an ignorant blood purist who was intolerant and manipulative and believed himself better than everyone else. Malfoy had been his father's son. But everything couldn't be blamed on his parents. Malfoy had made bad choices, done awful things, and... Kingsley's words came roaring back. Words that reminded her that... While Draco Malfoy had been all of those terrible things, she didn't have the right to judge him. Not at face value. Not at all. Not when he was trying to atone. In his own way. Though vastly different, Hermione had made choices for which she sought a similar version of atonement with her parents. Being on the winning side of the war hadn't justified every single one of her actions. Just like him being on the losing side didn't deem him eternally a villain incapable of change. It just made them both human. Two sides of the same coin, capable of great and terrible things. It wasn't her place to determine what he deserved, but in that moment, it wasn't about Malfoy. It was about Scorpius. But it definitely wasn't ideal to give him a true account of the person his father had been, even as she sought answers to determine who she was now. The pieces she had of Draco Malfoy's life made little sense. The notes he left and the distance he kept— the time he'd invested to figure out the problem with his mother's potions and his overall apathy towards her disease. But something Hermione did know was that he had changed. And Scorpius deserved to know this version of his father. She knew it wasn't her place to tell him anything, but the open curiosity on his adorable face made Hermione try to find something she could say. Your dad and I... Well, we were not friends. I don't know him that well, but what I do know is that he's smart and is good at fixing things. The more she spoke, the easier it got. Somewhat. He was good at flying. He played Quidditch. Scorpius tilted his head to the side like a confused baby owl. Ah, you don't know Quidditch. Neither do I, but maybe one day Malfoy would teach him. Hermione cleared her throat. Your dad was great at potions. Still is, it seems. None of it was a lie, even if the truth was far more complex than the washed-down version she gave. Scorpius hung on her every word, cheeks flushed pink as if he were holding his breath. He wanted to know him. The sight of his curiosity made Hermione's heart squeeze tightly in her chest. 
She found herself grappling through the files in her mind just so she could help him. He, he likes reading the paper and crossword puzzles. He swims. He sets your place at the table every day and puts your note there himself. That made him freeze before producing not just one note, but a small handful from the pocket of his trousers, dropping some like most kids did when they tried to grab too many things for their little hands. What spilled from his pockets presented days and days of notes, notes that Scorpius kept close as he tried to decipher his father from words too illegible for him to read. There was a sad sort of irony that Hermione couldn't help but notice, couldn't help but feel the ache in her head and heart. What she told him wasn't much, but from the way his attention went from her to the notes, maybe it was enough, for now. One by one, after looking at each note and trying to decipher it, Scorpius returned them to his pocket, that was clearly charmed to hold the sheer volume of notes he kept there. He then returned to watching the storm, getting up and standing in front of the window, just as she had found him before. He seemed contemplative and stoic in a way that made him look older than five, as though life had dealt him a bad hand, maybe quite a few, but he wasn't bearing it. Even the way Scorpius held himself, like his father with both hands behind his back, made her feel both amused and sad. It was a strange mix that hurt because she could see that beneath it all, everything about him spoke of anguish and melancholy. A roll of thunder and a flash of lightning came and went, but he didn't flinch. His focus was on the raindrops that slid down the glass, distorting the world outside. Raindrops that he'd begun randomly tracing the trail of with a small finger. As she watched him, a question was called from the recesses of her mind. Hermione had no idea why she even asked it where the question had come from, but in the silence between them, as the rain fell, the wind gusted and lightning crackled overhead. A quiet question floated from her mouth to his ears. Are you okay? She immediately felt the bottom drop out of her heart when Scorpius tensed and then fell apart right before her eyes. He flinched as if her words had physically struck him, the hand still behind him curling into a small fist. The action tugged hard on every heartstring Hermione had and a familiar tightness returned only more intense. She heard Scorpius take a small, sharp breath before he rested his head on the cool glass. It only lasted a moment before he took a step back, wrapped his small hand around his stomach, and curled in on himself as though he needed protection, and the only place he could find it was in himself. Hermione moved on instinct rather than logic, placing a gentle, encouraging hand on his shoulder. He sidestepped. His message was clear. Don't touch. Keep away. And she listened, but remained close, helpless, hating that she'd unearthed his pain with one question. Scorpius's cheeks reddened as he turned his back to her completely, taking ragged breath after breath as if he were struggling for air, trying to keep something in that desperately wanted out. It's... it's okay to not be okay. No, Scorpius didn't make much noise. His hurt remained silent. But his pain... That was loud, vivid, and honest. It shook Hermione to the core. He lifted his head, staring at the ceiling as he struggled on, fighting it, breathing so loud it was deafening, like the storm outside. The one in front of her was a force of nature all its own. Scorpius was all Hermione could hear. His devastation was all she could feel. But slowly, he began to realize that he wasn't alone, that she was there, and he seemed to retreat further, deeper, fixing his face brick by brick, getting his breathing under control. Scorpius did everything except cry. 
She hated that somewhere along the line he had been taught to control himself to that extent. Hermione crawled to him, putting herself back in line of sight, face to face. She had no idea what to say or what to do, but she knew she had to do something before he closed again. Hermione didn't touch him, but she tried her best and offered some comfort. A word, the only word she could muster. His name. Scorpius. Whatever progress he'd made crumpled with the quivering of his lip. The forming of tears in his eyes were scrubbed away too hard with small hands he used to cover his face. Scorpius staggered back as if unmoored, and all Hermione could do was try to pull him back in with words. Can I help you? Gods, her hands were shaking so bad with her overwhelming urge to help him, to reach for him, to give a hurting child the comfort he so desperately needed. But the look he gave her haunted Hermione long after he calmed himself down enough to leave. A look that said one thing. No, she couldn't help. He had been quiet for too long. Jenny eyed the pie Hermione offered with the same suspicion she reserved for James whenever he tried to blame Albus and Lily for something they clearly hadn't done. Hermione held her breath until she accepted the offer, because really, who would turn down a pie? Blueberry especially. It was Lily's favorite. But acceptance didn't smooth her furrowed brows or remove that pinched expression from her face. The look that meant Hermione wasn't sure if Ginny was going to hold on for a meaningful lecture or let it go until next time. In truth, she didn't know which would be worse. You only bake dessert, under duress, or for someone's birthday. Ginny looked to her right at the second bag. It's no one's birthday, and you've baked two pies. What the hell happened to you today? Actually, she'd made three, but Hermione kept that bit of information to herself. I made that for Daphne. She loves pie, Hermione cleared her throat. Where are the kids? Nice diversion attempt, but I'll allow it. James is upstairs finishing his homework. She stopped and yelled for him to come down because Hermione was there. She could hear immediate movement. Lily's with my parents and Albus is out with Harry. He needed a break. Ginny sighed and joined her at the table. School was rough today. He came home in tears and he's still eating lunch alone. Hermione hated to hear that. Al was so kind and generous, but he never knew what to say to the other children. He'd get so excited that he'd just freeze up, much like stage fright. The children avoided him, called him names, and, well, he needed a friend who understood. I know it's not my weekend, but if you... Oh, no, we couldn't, Ginny waved her off. Harry took him to dinner, and they're going to the planetarium. Albus loved the stars. Still, I wouldn't mind. Thoughts of another little boy's pain and loneliness swelled and swirled in her memory, then receded, before coming back harder, like the tide. With it... Hermione felt the first size of the emotional blowback from the afternoon rise in her chest. She felt tightness behind her eyes that matched the one in her chest and blinked furiously to prevent any tears from falling. Her thumbnail dug into her hand, hard. It'd be nice to see him. Ginny said nothing at first, then leaned forward, placing her hand over Hermione's locked fingers, trying to catch her eye. Hermione looked past her friend to where another redhead entered the room. Hi, James! She greeted him with a bright smile that quickly hollowed out. At seven, James wasn't a hugger, never had been. He was more inclined to run or complain his way through one, but there must have been something on Hermione's face that made him approach with a tentativeness she had never seen before, something that made him pause at her side, then wrapped his arms around her. The hug didn't last long, just a few seconds, but it helped. Having no idea how much she needed that, 
James hopped over to Ginny's side with a warm smile. Too wide, like a Cheshire cat. Mom! Already knowing what he wanted, Ginny gave him a long look. Did you finish your assignments? Yes! Go get your shoes on and I'll take you over to the burr. With a whoop, he ran back out, and seconds later, they both heard him stomping around upstairs. Ginny chuckled to herself, and Hermione couldn't help but join in. George is doing fireworks at the burrow. Angelina's in town. You should come. Take your mind off whatever it is that's troubling you. It'll just be back tomorrow. Hermione knew her smile was tight as she stared at her friend across the table. You never did say what happened today. Hermione took a deep breath. Not what? Who? Ginny's eyebrows lifted. Malfoy's? Yes, but no. The smallest one is... Hermione was at a loss for words. Ginny. Oh, whatever her friend knew about the Malfoy situation seemed to settle in. Oh, how long has it been? Six months? Ginny winced, knowing too much about loss. Not a lot of time. Not for any of them. Even Malfoy. Hermione frowned. From what I've gathered, it wasn't a marriage of love, just duty. Doesn't change the fact that he lost someone, too. The words stuck to her like a second skin, a film that no amount of scrubbing could cleanse. They settled and made her itch with irritation, made her oddly restless. It was one thing to think of Draco Malfoy as a father and son, but another to remind herself that he was, in fact, a widower, that he'd lost someone as well. His attitude clearly never served as cue. He never acted like someone who was in mourning. But that wasn't fair of her. How could anyone tell someone how to grieve? much less someone like Draco Malfoy, whose pride and defensiveness had made him hard-pressed to ask for help in the simplest form, even when he needed it. Especially then. Her thoughts made her decline Ginny's invitation a second time, and brought her to her next destination, Dean and Daphne's. When Hermione showed up at the doorstep after dark, Dean took one look at her face, then at what she was holding, and stepped aside. Daph! Hermione's here. Looks like she's brought you a pie. The pregnant woman practically materialized at the top of the stairs. Oh, what kind? They locked eyes and knowing expressions passed between them. Dean, can you? Ron's inviting me to the borough for fireworks, remember? But you said you wanted me to work on the nursery, yes, yes, but now you can go. Daphne had already started down the stairs, one hand on the railing and the other cradling her ever-growing belly. She was in her eighth month and starting to waddle which was how she walked over to her husband, kissing him soundly before shooing him off. Dean left before she could change her mind and put him back to work, but not before he looked back. Want me to bring anything home? We're out of crisps. You ate them all. They all knew that was a lie, but Dean just smiled. Sure thing, love. The cheese ones, please. He chuckled, nodded fondly, and then left them alone in the foyer. Smells fresh. Daphne accepted the pie with a raised eyebrow. It is, before she could ask, Hermione told her the flavor. Blueberry. Oh, one of my favorites. That was the ticket, because Daphne led the way to their living room, where Hermione took off her shoes and settled on the smaller of the two sofas, waiting until Daphne grabbed two forks. They ate in companionable silence. Daphne used her baby bump to balance the pie. They were halfway finished when the blonde held the fork to her lips and handed the pie off to Hermione. Not that she was finished, but she clearly had something to say. As much as I love your pie, I know you didn't bake one just to come here and share it with me. You hardly like baking at all, unless it's someone's birthday, or you're agitated. Daphne reached over and scooped up another bite. 
You look like the latter. What happened? When Hermione said nothing, Daphne sighed. Obviously something happened, so don't lie. Just a long day. How is he? The he he was referring to was obvious. Ginny had asked her the same question, but for some reason, honesty came easier with Daphne. Likely because she knew, because she had experienced Scorpius's pain for herself. The father and son weren't the only ones who had lost someone. I... Hermione exhaled a rough breath. I've spent the hours it took to prepare and bake this pie from scratch, wondering how someone so small can feel so much. It's mind-boggling, heartbreaking, crippling. Watching him stumble towards the edge of falling apart only to fight and claw his way back was a different kind of pain, more than unbearable. And worse, watching Scorpius compose himself as if he were practiced act made her nauseous. Long after he left, Hermione had struggled to stay within the boundaries she'd set up when she'd started working as Narcissa's healer. Struggling to hold on to the belief, the idea, the fucking delusion, that she could keep to the outside of the Malfoy family storm. Honestly, she hadn't done a good job. Hermione had stood outside the library earlier and listened to Scorpius struggle through music lessons, cringing as his nanny gently correcting him over and over until it was time for him to move on to another subject. Dead languages. And he seemed to struggle through that as well, with the way his tutor kept having to tell him to focus, pay attention. Hermione had only been just able to pull herself away. But that knowing discomfort lingered, whispering the truth that she preferred to ignore because it really wasn't her place. As Malfoy liked to remind her, she had one patient, and Narcissa was it. But was it? The random question made Hermione remove herself completely, not only from the room, from the Malfoy's home. She let Zippy handle Narcissa's meals for the rest of the day, went home, pulled weeds, chased the chickens, reorganized her cupboards, and aggressively made three pies. The third one would be a gift for Scorpius's nanny. I went over earlier, apparently right after you'd left. Daphne didn't look especially thrilled about the visit. I didn't stay long. He was not having a good day. Of course not. Hermione bit her lip before asking, Did he look at you? No. They continued eating the pie with new vigor, but Hermione could no longer taste the sweetness of the fruit, or the richness of the crust. It tasted like nothing. Daphne must have felt the same way. They stopped eating simultaneously. Hermione put the pie on the table, and it wasn't long before she ran a hand through her hair. Daphne did something very similar, looking past her at the blank wall over her head. She grabbed Hermione's hand and held on without questioning any further. Honestly, she thought that Daphne would be the first to crack, but in the end... It was her own frustration and heavy emotions that outweighed everything else. I'm frustrated, Hermione confessed abruptly, and I'm not certain I'll be able to remain objective. With Narcissa? No, Scorpius. Hermione sucked in a breath while Daphne watched her with an unreadable expression. She exhaled until she had nothing left. I'm not always clinical, you know. I do have a heart. I'm not impervious. I'm not blind, nor am I deaf to a child who is crying out for help. I have tried to keep my distance. Gods, I have watched this play out for an entire month, but I don't know how long I'll be able to ignore what's so blatantly happening in front of me. How don't they see? Draco is too busy to see. Too distracted trying to atone for his sins and fix, well, everything to protect his family. Too overwhelmed by everything that's happened and anything that's coming to him incredibly fast which was an excuse, but also reality. 
Hermione didn't know whether to empathize or criticize, so she didn't either, continuing to listen. And Narcissa doesn't want to see. She's willfully ignorant to the fact that she's turning him into Draco, blessedly not who he was when he was a child, but who he is now. Apathetic, pessimistic, frustrating, disconnected. The list went on and on, but Hermione left it at that. Ah, yes, all of that. Daphne shook her head. But moreover, lonely. How is Malfoy lonely? He has you all in whatever capacity he needs. He has Scorpius, who carries around weeks' worth of letters that are completely illegible to him, but does so because he's desperate to know his father. Hermione took a breath, rubbing her hand across her forehead. How I see it, this is by choice. The distance he keeps and the loneliness you say he feels. He's only lonely because he chooses to be. For just a moment, Daphne fell silent. It's not an excuse. That's just all he knows. In solitude, the lonely man is eaten up by himself. Among crowds of the many. Frederick Nietzsche Chapter 9 Let the Wild Rumpus Start May 20th, 2011 Bridges When Hermione spared herself a moment to consider them, she realized how strange they were. Outside of exquisite architecture and meticulous buildings, bridges were a contraption of metal and wood, wire and thick rope, built to link places, people, and worlds together that had been kept apart by nature itself. Building one was complicated, impossible without the right tools, but traveling across a bridge involved an act of faith for someone like Hermione, who was terrified of heights. To her, they posed a strange and sudden sensation of impending doom, like flying. Irrational, but there was nothing to be done about it. However, as Hermione sipped her mint tea with Narcissa's palliates of healers, Saxe and Keating, she couldn't help but also realize that the bridges could be a metaphor for what she was trying to do, band all the pieces of Narcissa's life together to create a cohesive pathway of assistance, information, and maybe even progress where none had existed before. Building bridges had been Hermione's primary motivation behind opening her home up to Narcissa's existing team. She had originally scheduled this meeting to take place at the Malfoy home, but she changed her mind. Sometime a change in scenery was beneficial to generate the desired outcome. It could help shift perspective and potentially create the foundation necessary to build those bridges. It was also away from Narcissa's presence and influence. The timing couldn't have been better. Fresh off holiday, their guards were down and they were relaxed. The backdrop of the world around her cottage was just as green and alive as the plants in her conservatory they'd examined upon arrival. Hermione provided tea and fresh apple pie she'd baked from another frustrating day, but she tucked those feelings away and forced a thin smile as she politely listened to their stories about their holidays, time they had obviously needed, judging by their brighter spirits. It was already going far better than their first meeting. Sax had gone on a bucket list trip to Egypt, while Keating spent time with family and welcomed a new grandchild she proudly showed pictures of, a girl named Helena. The bits she'd learned during their conversation would help in her ultimate quest to get to know them as individuals. That wasn't why Hermione had extended the invitation, of course, but she was finally understanding the reason behind Theo's controlled silences. Words were powerful. They could lay the groundwork, but silence was just as important. She had to be patient, had to watch them interact, had to learn them to find a way in, which was something Hermione needed. 
So as they chatted with each other, she separated them and analyzed each as an individual, rather than a pair that worked so well together. On paper, she knew them well enough. Age, hometown, education, healing specialties, employment history. Based on their employee files, they were qualified for the job she needed them to do. But Hermione could see the personality clash approaching from several kilometers away. Keating was softer, more obliging and matronly in the same way as Molly, a nurturer and a follower. But Saxe was different, bolder, more outspoken and confident, like an extremely watered-down version of Narcissa. Like Keating and Narcissa, she was also traditional, but lacked the latter's poise and grace that came from years in high society. They were opposites in every way. Saxe was a pale, graying brunette, while Keating had a beautiful olive complexion that complemented her full head of gray. They worked fluidly together, thanks to experience, mutual respect, and a bond that established years before. Hermione realized that sex would be her issue, but she could also be the key. Keating would be easy to win, but if she won Sax's favor, she wouldn't have to work hard for Keating's. And maybe they would help her win over Narcissa. Hermione pondered it. The plan was still a work in progress with issues she had to resolve to wiggle her way through the gap. First order of business? Determine the extent of their loyalty to each other, and more importantly, to Narcissa. "'Do you have any children?' Keating asked to make conversation. She was clearly the sort that thought the good icebreaker was a mild, invasive question about family. With a good spirit and polite smile, Hermione shook her head. Three godchildren, something like one to another, but none of my own. "'Oh!' There was an awkward pause as Keating looked at Saxe, who had wisely picked the right moment to pull out her focus into sipping her tea. The older woman cleared her throat. "'Well, there's still time.' That was something people said to placate a childless woman on the wrong side of thirty. What she really meant was, "'Your time is running out.' Had Hermione's skin been thinner, had she not already had the same conversation with her mother, the woman's words might have bothered her a great deal. As it stood, though, she brushed the comment off. Still, they didn't make for a good transition. The air around them shifted imperceptibly a bit more awkward now tinged with discomfort. She needed to get things back on track. Hermione had not just invited them over for tea and a chat. She also wanted to discuss their new assignment. "'If I'm meant to be a mother, I'll be one. If I'm not, I already have plenty of children to spoil.' Both women agreed with wordless nods. It wasn't the best response, slightly too personal for her taste, considering they were subordinates at best but it was open enough to make her relatable in a way that was necessary to lay the foundation for what was needed. Hermione wasn't used to working with others, at least not at the level she would be working with them. But if the last month had taught her anything, it was going to take a team effort. She couldn't do it alone. She needed their help, their support, their knowledge about the family, and most importantly, their trust, which wasn't going to come easily. "'I'm glad you both had restful holidays,' "'Have you had time to review everything I sent via Owl yesterday?' The amended care plans had been thick. She'd given the delivery owls in Godric's Hollow two treats apiece to take them. They both nodded. "'It was very... detailed. "'Do any of you have any preferences for mornings or evening?' Hermione knew, just from Keating's remarks, that she hadn't read it at all, but she kept that to herself. "'And do you understand your duties as they pertain to each shift?' "'We've discussed it.' "'And I agreed to take days, as I've accompanied Narcissa to events in the past as an aide,' Sack spoke up. "'Keating will take night shifts. Before you took over, we would alternate, but your manual didn't allow for such flexibility.' Hermione couldn't ignore her tone. 
She firmly believed that if a weed was left alone too long, it would grow and flower and spread its seeds, making her weeding situation exponentially worse, which was why weeding had always been an essential daily activity. And while she had already weeded her garden, she apparently had more to go. Clearing her throat, Hermione dipped her finger through the handle of her teacup, using her other hand to assist lifting it to her lips. "'Before we go on, Sax, do you have issues with my treatment methods, my presence, or just me?' She took a healthy sip of tea, lemongrass and ginger, just the tang she needed. Sax blinked several times, jarred by her brazen question and stunned into silence. Keating, sitting across from her, went completely still. "'I feel that the key to a successful working relationship is to create one based on respect, trust, and open communication.' I sincerely hope that I haven't done or said anything that makes either of you feel as though you don't have a voice. Because you do. I consider myself to be approachable. Hermione made an easy gesture with her free hand. Please, don't hesitate. Speak up. After a long pause, Sax did. I don't have a problem at all with anything you have laid out in your treatment package. But it seems strict. Narcissa will push back. One could argue that her treatment was no less strict than Scorpius's schedule, but that was another thing she kept to herself. The irony of it was astounding. Be that as it may, it'll be your job to see that she doesn't. As she declines, she might become a different person, not the Narcissa you know. It's not an easy job going forward, so if you don't feel you can, please don't be afraid to let me know. They both, in their own words, accepted the challenge. Hermione took another sip. Continuing on, the potions don't work unless they're taken both consistently and within a certain time frame. Her condition, as well as her potions, requires strict monitoring. I will also ask you both to make sure to keep notes in your notebooks. The parchment is spelled to appear on a master parchment, so please monitor any fluctuations and be on the lookout for triggers in her episodes. While you trade off monitoring her days and nights, I'll be around during both, checking in, handling meals and making potions. Once we have a baseline, we can make adjustments. Sax picked up her fork. I would have thought that after a month you would have been able to answer some of those questions yourself. Hermione sat her teacup on the saucer. Due to an undisclosed allergy to goat's horn, her potions have been rendered useless until two days ago. Unfortunately, I'm still trying to create a baseline. Both looked confused. She doesn't have any allergies. Ah, they hadn't known either. Apparently that's not true, as I found out a few days ago. From where? Her son. That got both their attention. They went from relaxed to sitting straighter in their chairs, which made her do the same. Keating and Sax exchanged looks. The former looked flummoxed while the latter's brows lifted slowly. Draco helped? Reluctantly. Hermione found herself wondering what they knew and how easy it might be to get them to talk about the Malfoys. Keating took her cues from Sax, which made Hermione grimace. He told me about the allergy and made the adjustments to her potion. So far, her potions had been working well. Everything hadn't quite leveled out, but last night had been the first with zero disturbances. It was an improvement. Hermione was as cautiously optimistic as Malfoy had been quietly cocky that morning over his black tea and daily crossword. Outside of his physical signs of exhaustion, his biggest clue to the lack of sleep had been Malfoy not reacting when she told him the answer to fifteen across. Vexatious. Absolutely fitting. She frowned with deep annoyance. "'Are they speaking again?' Keating asked, forcing Hermione to tuck her thar away. "'Not particularly.' Hermione was brave enough to push the envelope. "'You both must have been working for the family for years. 
Do you know how long things have been like this between them? Another look passed between the two women. I only ask because I'm part of the team as well. Which was true. Something that was also true? The help knew everything. Sack sighed, resting back on the chair and folding her arms. They traded one last look before Keating took the lead. I was originally caring for Astoria, the poor dear. The healer paused for a moment. Her parents spent an excessive amount of time and money trying to save her. She had just graduated from Hogwarts when I was hired, and they could barely afford my salary. When she married Draco, I was given a choice. Deciding to stay required me to move to France. I didn't think twice. I picked up my family and moved. I didn't want her to be alone, and I didn't know what sort of man Draco was. The rumors about him were awful. Interesting, but true. Malfoy's reputation in the Wizarding London hadn't been the best, an understatement, despite his mother's beloved status. And what do you think of him now? There was a quick moment where Keating pondered her statement, but her body language didn't indicate anything except truth. He's distant and guarded, but not unkind. They did the best they could under the circumstances. The statement was so loaded Hermione couldn't fathom interpreting it right then. She would need time, wine, and a whiteboard. For now, there were hundreds of questions that passed through her mind, hundreds more options, but Hermione chose one, the first one. Was he involved? That question would determine his lack of involvement in Narcissa's care was a normal thing or an exception. Her disease was incurable, Miss Granger, but there was a treatment that existed which slowed it down. Not enough for her to have a normal lifespan, but that wasn't good enough for her parents who wanted her cured. So Astoria spent every spare moment of her life being experimented on. By the time she married Draco, she was tired of being subjected to dangerous experimental magic and harsh potions that would leave her sick or listless. That sounded horrible. Hermione couldn't fathom the pain, both from disappointment and from the treatments themselves. Vaguely, she remembered Daphne explaining this to her a lifetime ago, but she couldn't recall many details. In a way, her marriage saved her from that. Draco had the decency to respect her wishes for a normal life. As far as involvement, he had more than a passing level of knowledge about her blood illness. I doubt she would have lived as long as she had, had he not made her potions himself. Hermione froze. Definitely an exception. As for the rest, she filed it away, and the other things that needed processing, categorizing, and analyzing, it would take a while. When did you start? Hermione asked Sachs. Halfway through a pregnancy with Scorpius. Narcissa hired me exclusively for end-of-life care. No one expected her to live through childbirth. They were nearly correct about her and Scorpius. An awkward bubble was born deep inside Hermione, and it swiftly rose to the surface. When it burst, it projected the pure, vivid image of a man who had nearly lost everything in one day, in one instant. The visual caused something to coil inside her, a long, slow wind that tightened uncomfortably with a small jerk. Hermione finished her tea, but it tasted like warm water. It took another few moments to realize that Sax was still talking. She was so frail after he was born, but determined to be involved in raising him, so naturally they had a Mediwitch and a nanny, but Astoria was very involved in his day-to-day -day care, and as he got older, she mustered the strength to teach him, despite being nearly bedridden. Hermione had to ask, Etiquette? No, Keating spoke up. The basics that one would teach a toddler. Colors, counting, letters, shapes. She hardly ever had the energy to take him outside, but she played with him, read to him all the time, and showed him everything she could. Her sister visited monthly, and she would take him places. Not around too many people, of course. There were a few incidents. 
Keating pressed her lips into a thin line. Daphne stopped taking him out after the last one. Instead, she tried to bring activities to him. I think that was around the time they put Atelier in Astoria's quarters. Narcissa was upset. Hermione found the mental image of Narcissa in a state about Atelier appearing in her home hilarious. Do they still have it? I haven't seen it since the move back to London. It's probably put away along with everything else. All of Astoria's things. Keating looked wistful, like most caregivers thinking of a lost patient. Even when they weren't expecting it, it still hurt. Narcissa would never allow it in the house. She only tolerated it because Draco. Well, things were sour with them long before Scorpius was born. Partly had to do with Narcissa's treatment of her. You're speculating. There was a hard set to Sack's narrowed eyes. Draco was hardly around. He was around when he could, Keating clarified after catching sight of Hermione's raised eyebrow. He also helped when he could. But... The woman's sigh was one of someone who had a lot to say, but didn't quite know how to phrase it. I think he spent more time on security and warding than anything. As he should have, Sack said. I still have scars on my hands from that poison. Hermione blinked, then took a sharp look at Sax's hands. The similarity between her scars and Molly's was... Keating blinked down at her partner's hands and then took a deep breath. She got back on subject. Narcissa's education didn't start until after Astoria reached the point of no return. Sax made a small noise after taking a sip of tea. My opinion is that had she allowed Narcissa to help with Scorpius earlier, she might have taken better care of herself and lived longer. But as it was, she dedicated every ounce of energy she could to raise him and shut Narcissa out until she absolutely had no choice in the matter. Having seen her strict treatment of Scorpius, Hermione honestly couldn't... Can you blame her? For a split second, Hermione wondered if she'd asked the question that had been on her mind. How embarrassing. But then she realized that, no, she hadn't. It had come from Keating. There was a frown on her face, and she was gripping her teacup with both hands, a complete opposite to Sex, who had nearly finished her pie. And there it was. The Divide. May 21st, 2011. Hermione woke up in stages. She found she was in no rush to start the day after a late night with Padma and Susan in the conservatory, drinking elf-made wine and chatting about the ins and outs of work at St. Mungo's, something they couldn't do when everyone else was around as they found their work stories dull. Hermione felt good, despite the lack of sleep, deciding to lie there for a while and watch the sun creep across the floor towards the bed. Fortunately, she hadn't bothered to shut the drapes, and she was catching a glimpse of a glorious sunrise. The promise of it pulled her from the bed and into her bath, where she showered before pulling her hair back into a purposely messy bun. Opting for comfortable clothes, she laced up her wellies and headed downstairs for tea. She also needed to check on Narcissa's enchanted parchment. A second night of stable readings was more than enough proof that the corrected potion was working. From the readings, it appeared she was still sleeping. Good. Today was the first day back for Keating and Sachs. Hermione made a mental reminder to visit Keating tonight and draw her into conversation. Perhaps during the day tomorrow she would go over to check on Sachs. A solid plan all around. With that done, Hermione decided to check on the sun's journey into the morning sky, but first she took a call from her mother who asked her what she was doing. About to start in the garden. That sounds lovely, dear. There was a noise in the background and it sounded like her dad. Oh, never you mind. He must have realized she was still on the phone. Sorry about that, love. Your dad has opinions. Whatever that meant. 
Hermione knew better than to ask, because she would never get an answer. Not from her dad, at least. Anyway, I was calling to check on you and see if you were free for dinner Thursday. We'll be leaving for Greece in a couple of weeks, and thought it would be lovely to see you before we go. Hermione blinked at the change in plans. The change in the schedule they had adhered to for years. It was a welcome surprise that filled her with hope. Oh, of course. Wonderful. See you then. Farewells were exchanged before Hermione hung up the phone. With a pep in her step, she ventured around the conservatory, caring for the plants scheduled for Saturday watering, and even those who were greedy and dry when they shouldn't be. By the time she started pruning the climbing roses, the sun had really begun to make an appearance, brightening all corners of the room, and further lifting her spirit. It was a lovely sight to behold. Both the conservatory from above, and the world beyond the window. Peaceful and quiet. The morning sky was blue, with streaks of orange, reds, and yellows, and cloudless for a change as the last couple days had been gray, heavy, and drizzly. Well, at least until yesterday afternoon when it had cleared up. Typical for the season and her location, but today was a treat. Hermione looked around the orderly room. She'd done enough work. It was time to enjoy the view. After climbing down her ladder, she put it away and curled up on her chaise by the full-length window with a fresh cup of tea and a book she'd been working through over the last week. She was truly ready to enjoy the view of her growing garden, the greenhouse a short walk away, and the pasture that led to the edge of the forest in the distance. After a long look, she opened the battered copy of The Book Thief and picked up where she'd left off. The sun was a good deal higher in the sky when she heard her flu come to life and felt the tingling of her wards announcing the arrival of two people. After tucking her bookmark between the pages, Hermione ventured back into the living room to find her guest patiently waiting. Well, not the smaller of the two. As she stepped through the door and into the kitchen, she had just enough time after hearing, Auntie Hermione! to shut the door behind her before a child-sized blur appeared, wearing a cannon jersey, jeans, and Velcro trainers. The blur named Albus Potter practically launched himself at her legs, hugging them tightly and almost knocking her off balance. Oof! Hermione breathed out a laugh when he didn't let go. Well, hello to you too, Al. Hi! The little boy's words sounded more like a squeak. Harry, meanwhile, just chuckled from his spot in front of the fireplace, shaking his head in amusement as he sat Albus's bags on the sofa. Hey! It's only been a week, she ruffled his soft but messy brown hair. Missed me much? Yes! he answered, still holding on. He's not lying. His father crossed into the kitchen and approached them. He woke us up at five and was already dressed with his bag packed for the day. Quite determined. Harry gave Albus a fond look. The little boy raised his head, peering up at her with a big grin, flushed cheeks, and bright green eyes. Sorry we're early. No bother at all, she looked down and smiled. Did you eat? Albus shook his head. She made an exaggerated face, pretending to think very deeply. I might have a bit more of that strawberry jam Dolores made. At that, his eyes lit up more. We can have eggs and toasted jam. How do you feel about bacon? Yes, please. Hermione grinned. Okay, go wash your hands and I'll let you help me make breakfast. Off he ran, back through the living room and up the stairs to the guest bath upstairs where his stool had a permanent home so he could reach the sink. They both watched him go, then Harry grinned. He'll be gone for ten minutes. Tops. Yep, they both chuckled. Thanks again, Hermione. Stop thanking me. I love having Albus over. James and Lily, too. Even though all three together were chaotic at best, she had no idea how Harry and Ginny managed. Years of practice, she supposed. 
When she had all three, Hermione would sleep for hours after they left, truly worn out. They're fun, and a big help in the vegetable patch. What are you all doing today? Errands, mostly, but we're taking the kids to the aquarium, and then to Diagon Alley this afternoon. I asked Al if he wanted to go, but when Ginny said he could come here, even though it wasn't his week, he was hell-bent, Harry shrugged. What's on your agenda? Weeding, mostly, but I've got to clean the chicken coop. We'll picnic in the pasture, too. Last time he wanted me to read where the wild things are, and the scaredy squirrel, so I'll do that before we take a walk towards the forest. Ah, Harry fixed his glasses and gave her a look as he leaned against the kitchen island. He said he's ready this week. Let me know if he makes it, yeah? It's all he's talked about. Will do. After a moment's hesitation, Hermione gave her best friend a knowing look as she folded her arms. How's it going with Malfoy? The question made him sigh. Despite the fact that it had been just over a week since their compromise in his office, she had no idea if his response was good or not. It's not going horribly, if that's what you're asking. We've started quietly training teams D and E together. We let Hestia in enough for her to create the cover. Malfoy found a training room and worded the hell out of it. It's going well enough. Malfoy is... Harry frowned, unwilling to continue on that train of thought. We've scheduled a meeting with Team C on Monday. Then why the sigh? Because it's Malfoy. Harry's statement was deeply relatable. He's frustrating. That he is. Harry was silent for a moment. I will say he's been far more tolerable than usual. Also, he's not so horrible as a teacher. Yet, for some reason, I still have the urge to hex him. Repeatedly. A natural reaction. Hermione patted his shoulder in mock sympathy. There, there. Mending bridges wasn't the easiest thing to do. It also wasn't something that could be done in a week, or two, with a few positive interactions. It would take time, and a conscious effort from both of them. Whether it would extend past the completion of their job or eradicating the threat of Death Eaters, Hermione had no idea. She refused to speculate or give it too much consideration. Regardless, I'm just glad I was able to help, she cleared her throat, tentatively touching on the subject she was curious about. How has he been the last, say, week or so? A bit off, but I can't tell how. He looked at her oddly. Why? No reason. It was a quick lie, and Harry didn't look convinced. He crossed his arms, which made her poke at the topic a little harder. Might as well. He was already slightly suspicious anyway. He told me that he was doing the overnight canvas in Wales. Harry's eyebrow disappeared into his hairline. He told you that? Yes. The look he gave her was oddly probing, but Harry was no Theo or even Malfoy, so she returned his stare comfortably until he shrugged. He volunteered to handle them. The task force is... He sighed and scrubbed a hand over his face. Malfoy's trying to wrangle them together before someone gets killed. He believes there's a hideout nearby, and based on the number of low-level Death Eaters they've caught in the last couple days, I think he's right. We were supposed to report to the Wizengamot, but all security briefings have been suspended as Tiberius goes through each department and questions people about the restoration movement. It has a name. I have no idea. I'm not allowed to know anything, apparently. Then how do you know that? Harry smiled and they both started laughing, but not for long. When her best friend ran his fingers through his messy hair, she knew that he was trying to approach a topic he was unsure about, and gave him a look that basically told him to spit it out. That day, in my office. What about it? That's probably the most Malfoy has spoken since we caught Rockwood. 
Usually it's all one-sided conversation where he hates all my ideas, but doesn't offer any reason the things he suggests. Like the pureblood ward specialist. Had he actually said that, I would have understood. I might have even agreed. He wasn't wrong. There was a deep communication issue between them, which had a lot to do with their fundamental differences, not to mention their history. Not to make excuses for him, but what did you expect? Didn't you have a row with him your first week? Harry looked slightly ashamed of himself. Okay, yes, but... It happened. Hermione shrugged casually. Not your finest moment, but Malfoy didn't have to be an enormous prat in the aftermath. Let's call it a tie and start over. Leave it in the past. That's all you can do if you truly want this collaboration to be successful. I know both of you are anxious to be rid of the Death Eaters. I am too. They're getting too close for my comfort, especially with the children. And your threats aren't too close for comfort? Theo told me about two more attempted security breaches in the last month. Of course Theo did. Harry gave her a look and she pressed her lips into a thin line. The fact that you and Theo discuss me behind my back is aggravating. If you want details, it happens over... Hermione shoved him in the arm, which only made him laugh. Don't act like you don't use Dolores to keep tabs on me. That's not the point. But it is. Just like the threats concerning my kids. They're also close to you. I can protect myself. James, Al, and Lily, they can't. Malfoy's probably having similar thoughts about his family. Hence his extensive attention to security. You're right. With another sigh, her best friend rubbed the back of his neck. You're both on the same side now, with a common enemy, she reminded him as they slid into the space next to him, angled towards her friend. I'm not saying become friends with him, but there's more common ground between you two than battleground. You're both fathers with children and families who are facing the same threat. I don't know the extent of Malfoy's issues with Death Eaters, or what's happened while they were in France, but from what little I do know, it wasn't easy. And I know everything with Molly and the kids... It's been difficult for everyone. If Malfoy is paranoid enough to work a job for free to avoid being a sitting duck, I just... You really should have taken that liaison position before they offered it to Malfoy. Harry gave her a sidelong glance. Would have made life easier. Hermione rolled her eyes after bumping his shoulder with hers. You'd rather just work with me over Malfoy. Admit it. True, but also, you'd be good at it. You're capable of looking at an argument from both sides. Hermione gave a half-shrug. Perhaps, but I'm not always right, nor do I always have the right answer. I have my point of view, and will express that through my words. With that being said, I actually think it's good that I'm not working with you. Oh? Harry's brows rose over the brim of his glasses. Yeah. She thought back to her conversation with Theo. I'm not a challenge for you, and we've been through so much together that our perspectives are too similar. We generally agree on most things, and even when we don't... We still manage to find common ground. Malfoy is that different perspective, Harry, and he's also a test for you. Really, Malfoy was testing them both. The thought made Hermione frown. Meanwhile, Harry's scoff was one part annoyance and one part skeptical amusement. A test? That's an understatement. She chuckled quietly. Maybe so, but Theo said something that made me think. From working with his mother, and by extension him, sometimes we need to be challenged to grow as people. It's the only way we learn, and the only way you'll prove that you're a capable leader to anyone who doubts you. They fell into a short, companionable silence, where Harry reflected and she listened out for Al, who had a tendency to play in the sink when he was supposed to be washing his hands. She'd give him another minute. You're right, 
He let out a deep sigh. Any Malfoy advice? I've got no idea how to read him. At her best friend's disbelief, because she always had a grasp on most people and their motivations, she held up a hand. No, seriously, I don't. Think about it. It's not like Malfoy to be up front with anything. I mean, think about it. You basically had to stalk him around Hogwarts to glean information. What makes you think he's any different as an adult? We know less about him now than we did then. Harry merely shrugged, clearly not ashamed about his past actions. She couldn't deny he'd had his reasons, right or wrong. But his face shifted momentarily as he turned his curious green eyes on her. He didn't even bother hiding his continued skepticism. Really? You seem to have a handle on him in my office. He actually listened to you instead of calling you an idiot. She scoffed with a dismissive roll of her eyes. From what little he does know of me? Not even Malfoy could, in good faith, call me an idiot. On any scale. At that, he laughed and tossed his head back. Hermione couldn't help but smile at the response. That's true. Harry's crooked grin reminded her of Albus when he found something both surprising and funny. If it means something... I think he's trying to figure you out, too. And he's stumped. Hermione barely had suppressed her recoil, but found herself shocked by his statement. A flare of unfamiliar warmth shot through her veins, but a quick rub at the back of her neck was her only outward reaction. What makes you think that? He watches you. With a shrug, Harry glanced at his watch as they both heard Al's footsteps approaching. Malfoy's observant. Yeah, but it's like he's waiting for you to say something that doesn't ring true. Something that isn't straight. Anyway, I should head back. I left Jenny to sort breakfast. James and Lily were arguing about who should get the last of the juice. Which meant that Jenny was about to break both of their spirits and drink it all herself. In front of them. She would call it a lesson about compromise. Harry would likely return to a house of pouting children and a wife who was supremely proud of herself. One of us will come back and pick him up later. Take your time. Hermione waved him off as Al made his appearance, holding on to the railing. His shirt was soaked, so she already knew he'd been splashing around in the sink. Hermione chuckled to herself as she went to the refrigerator to pull out eggs, bacon, and cameo apples Neville had brought by last week. Peering in her bread box that was under a stasis charm, she picked out the bread that she'd baked the previous morning and found it perfectly fresh. Meanwhile, Harry used his wand to dry his son's shirt before kneeling down and hugging Al, who never ran from affection like James. The little boy only grinning when his dad kissed him on the forehead. It was nice. Harry never once hesitated to show Albus, or any of his children, the affection he hadn't grown up with. Have fun today. I will, Dad. Albus was at her side before Harry could leave through the flue. Stepstool acquired from the closet. The five-year-old was ready to crack the eggs. Remember how I showed you? Hermione placed the bowl in front of him and summoned a fork. The young boy eagerly nodded. I can do it. Of course he could. She had no doubt about it. Fears and wariness around strangers aside, Al had an independent streak a kilometer long that he'd inherited from his father, along with a healthy dose of obstinacy from both of his parents. When Hermione handed him the egg, she stood behind him, not hovering, but watching as he gently tapped onto the edge of the countertop just like she taught him. Then he broke it open over the bowl, a little heavy-handed as she quickly picked out a few shells, but overall it had been a job well done. Hermione took a moment to celebrate with him by letting him do the second egg. And the third. In no time, she and Albus were eating breakfast at the table in the conservatory, enjoying the slow crawl of the sun across the morning sky. By then, 
He had settled into his normal bundle of content energy, and was on his knees in the chair because it was easier for him to reach. His fork usage was spotty at best, and he licked jam off his fingers and created a mess on his face. Between, and sometimes during, bites, he chattered about every pertinent event from his week, which was basically every second of every day. Hermione listened along as she ate, smiling when she told her about something good, asking questions that made his entire face light up, and making sure she looked engaged, even though she had no idea what he was saying during the parts the young boy sped through with frenetic energy. "'Can I play with the chickies today?' Albus finished his apple juice licking his lips. He was mostly done eating, just a bit more to go. The area around his mouth was a sticky mess, but he looked pleased with himself. She let him be, for now. "'Well, you happen to be in luck,' his eyes widened in barely concealed excitement. "'I've got to clean the coop out, so you'll need to feed them while I work, okay?' "'Okay!' "'After we're done, we can weed the garden and water the plants in the greenhouse. How's that sound?' "'Fun!' Albus smiled, reaching for his fork with his left hand. "'So when you finish up, you've got to clean your face and hands, then we can get started, okay?' "'Okay!' Hermione stood, picking up her dish and cup. "'Don't forget to bring yours in when you're finished.' "'I won't!' Al beamed as he continued eating the last few bites of his meal. He dropped a piece of egg on his shirt, picked it up, and ate it. Boys. Exactly how Ginny kept his and James' clothes clean, she had no idea— but it likely involved a good amount of magic. After shaking her head and chuckling at the sight of him licking his jam off his toast, as opposed to eating it, Hermione gave him one last lingering look before leaving him there to happily finish his breakfast. It didn't take long. By the time she was putting her teacup away, Al came inside, balancing his breakfast dishes. She went to help him, but he insisted he could do it himself. And she let him, moving his little step stool over in front of the sink so he could do his own washing. She made him wash his hands while she wet a fresh dish towel with warm water to wipe his face. Naturally, Al grouched and complained, but was pretty good-natured about it once she told him the bugs were going to eat him up if he came outside sticky sweet. After putting the clean dishes away, Hermione clasped her hands together, snickering when he did the same. Now, what shall we do first? The five-year-old threw his hands up. Chickies! And that's what they did. Hermione had never intended to own chickens— but back in January, when a wizard had offered to barter three newly hatched chickens for the rest of the vegetables she'd brought to the market in Godric's Hollow, she couldn't pass up the idea of fresh eggs every day. She didn't require much or many. How hard could it have been anyway? Famous last words. For the brightest witch of her age, raising chicks had ended up being a lot more of an undertaking than she anticipated. She made more than a few errors along the way but once they were big enough in late February, Neville had built a dedicated area for them to roam, outside her garden, equipped with their own chicken coop. No one was happier than Pansy, who had threatened to end their friendship over the fact that she'd kept baby chicks in her spare bath for a month under warming charms while they were growing. They'd warded the coop against cold, weather, and predators. The three chickens were thriving. Each of Harry's kids had named one, Zazu, Iago, and Pink courtesy of Lily's favorite color and word. Last week, Al had asked if there were going to be any more baby chickens for him to cuddle. The answer? Not if she could help it. At least not right then. Hermione cleaned out the small coop and vanished the mess, lining the floor with old prophets and hay and refailing their water and fresh feed with a wave of her wand. Meanwhile, Al fed the chicken scraps she'd given him, 
played with them, talked to them about anything he could think of, and walked around their enclosed area while they toddled after him obediently. The sight was adorable, especially when he sat down the three competed for his attention. But he just loved them all, looking deliriously happy. Soon enough, they got bored with him and started eating, but by then her task was complete. "'Did you have fun?' Hermione asked once he ran over to her at the gate. Al nodded with a goofy grin, trailing after her out of the enclosure. "'They're so big!' Hermione led the way back into her garden and helped him into his gloves before putting hers on. With a little direction, they worked under the rising sun. It was nice outside, the perfect day to be out, and Al was loving the fresh air. And the weed-pulling. He was pretty excellent at it. "'Next time,' Hermione told him as they worked, "'they'll be a bit bigger.' Al gasped. "'Bigger than me?' "'No, never.' Noting the look of relief on his face, she tapped her gloved finger against his nose, which made him giggle before he focused on pulling the weeds, just like she taught him. His small hands combined with the softer earth from the rain gave him just enough of what he needed to succeed. When he held up the weed to show her, root still intact, the look on his flushed face was pure pride. She grinned with him. "'Good job, Al!' Using their hands and a bit of magic, they worked for almost two hours to complete the task. Or she did. Al ended up going back to the chicken enclosure to run around with them before flopping onto the magical hammock and napping in the breeze. It was just past noon when she finished, and Al was ready for lunch. But first, she wanted to see if any of the fruit in the greenhouse was ripe enough to eat. To his disappointment, they weren't. She made sandwiches, cut up fruit, and packed crisps into a picnic basket before grabbing her outdoor blanket, sunglasses for them both, and allowing Al to carry the books he wanted to read. He picked a spot in the middle of the pasture behind her house that put them in direct sun. Together they laid out the multicolor blanket and sat with their legs folded under them as they ate. Al talked his heart out between bites. He never got to say much around the much louder James or younger Lily. Here, Al had a chance to speak his mind. Hermione enjoyed the warmth of the sun as she listened. It wasn't long after they finished what they had stretched out the blanket with the book held aloft, blocking the sun from blinding her, despite the tint of her sunglasses. Al curled up against her and laid his head on the crook of her arm as she read Where the Wild Things Are, to him for what felt like the hundredth time. It was his favorite book. And the wild things roared their terrible roars, and gnashed their terrible teeth, and rolled their terrible eyes, and showed their terrible claws. Like he'd never heard it before, Al gasped and covered his eyes. "'Do you want me to stop?' Hermione knew the answer. The little boy uncovered his eyes long enough to turn the page. "'No!' With a tiny grin, she continued on until she finished and he clapped his small hands. She only sat up long enough to pick up the second book and place the first next to her. Al's second choice was a book she purchased for him called The Scaredy Squirrel. "'I never leave my nut tree. It's way too dangerous out there.' I could encounter germs, poison ivy, or sharks. If danger comes along, I'm prepared. I have antibacterial soap, band-aids, and a parachute. Albus giggled his way through the book, as always, and Hermione reminded herself to read him the second in the series next to normalize his fears and help him overcome them one by one, starting with the first one, his biggest one, the forest. He must have been gathering his nerve while she read, because as soon as Hermione finished, Al was getting to his feet. "'Can we walk now?' "'Of course, love.' They left their things at the blanket and walked toward the edge of the forest with the breeze blowing both in their hair, untamed as ever. Al was quiet, as always, 
slipping his smaller hand into hers as he braved on, mouth set in determination. Hermione never once forced him on these walks. It was something he initiated, a challenge to himself. Her wards extended into the trees, and James went into the forest all the time with Harry, Lily too. Albus wanted to be brave enough to join them. So on they walked, closer and closer, to the place of his fears. As always, behind her sunglasses, Hermione watched him more than she focused on the sunny day and greenery around them, reading the subtle cues he gave off and noting each milestone they made. The first part was always the easiest, and he smiled up at her before running ahead, until the point where he got a little nervous. Then he waited for her, reached out to hold her hand. Before long, he let her hand go long enough to pick up the marker of where they had last stopped, holding on to it as the forest loomed closer. Al was now slowly walking, lagging behind to the point where Hermione slowed down with him. "'It's okay, Al. We can stop.' "'I'm okay,' she heard the tremble in his voice. They still pressed on, walking more than a hundred paces past the last marking spot before Al finally squeezed her hand and stopped. He was looking up at the tall trees. They were so close she could hear the sounds of the forest. Smell it. Al pushed the little cannon's flag they used as a marker into the soft earth, as a reminder of how far they'd come. Hermione was bursting with pride for his new milestone, but today he seemed sadder than usual. And she had an inkling as to why. Disappointment. Come now, sit. Hermione tugged him down gently. They both sat right there on the same path they did every other Saturday. Al was facing her, looking closer to tears than she'd seen him in a long time. Frustration. Hermione lifted his chin with her finger, using her thumb to rub his flushed cheeks and wipe away the tear that slipped from under his sunglasses. You've done brilliant, Albus. When he shrugged sadly and more frustrated tears fell, she took off his sunglasses and tucked them into his shirt. His lip quivered as he struggled not to cry. You know I think you're brave, right? Al's pouty face scrunched up adorably. But I'm scared, and James says I'm a baby, and... You're scared, yet you walk with me anyway. In my opinion, that makes you brave. His eyes widened in childlike wonder. It does? Yes, Hermione patted her knees, and he crawled into her lap. He was almost too big. One day he would be for those moments, and it made her momentarily sad. Nostalgic. But she shook it off and brushed the hair from his face before wrapping him in a comforting hug. She felt his small arms around her and rested her chin on his forehead, speaking to him softly. "'You're brave because you get scared, but you keep going. You never give up.' It was truly what she loved best about Al, his determination. It reminded her so much of Harry. "'My dad says never give up, and I won't.' No, he wouldn't. Hermione was more confident of that than she was of most things." She held him in silence, stroking his hair as he went through his emotions about not making it. When Al started to stir, she asked, "'When we get there, what do you want to do first? "'Climb trees!' It was the same answer he gave every visit, and he sounded much better than he had before. "'And that's what we'll do. Your dad and Neville will build you, James, and Lily the best treehouse. I'll bring you sandwiches and juice while you three play. "'But what if it's not James or Lily?' Hermione frowned in confusion. Who else would you play with in your treehouse? Albus thought about it for a minute. I don't know. A friend? The rest of the day passed too quickly, but Hermione enjoyed every second of the energy Albus brought into her house. 
His presence kept her focused. It kept the troubling thoughts about a second boy at bay. For now. She got to continue her morning reading by the stream in front of her house, watching him play and splash around in lazy flowing water that went to the knees of the jeans she'd rolled up in an effort to keep them dry. She'd failed. He was less occupied with rock collecting, more interested in trying and failing to catch the small fish that avoided him at all cost. Much to her horror, Albus had, however, caught a small frog and brought it into the house, and lost it. It took ten minutes of panic before Hermione found it, and together they sent it back home into the great outdoors. "'Bye, Mr. Frog!' Al waved enthusiastically, as it hopped toward the water's edge. Neville would have been amused. Hermione spent the rest of their afternoon together, testing him on the names of plants she taught him on his last visit, and teaching him some new ones. Al was intelligent, and more importantly, motivated to learn. They worked on reading, addition and subtraction, and the schoolwork that he was struggling with. She even approached the tough subject of school itself. "'No one likes me,' Albus confessed with a shrug that looked as casual as it wasn't. His eyes were sad, shining with unshed tears. Then he cuddled against her on the sofa. "'I try.' "'I like you. And—' Hermione trailed off with a smile tinged with sadness, occupied by fresh thoughts of Scorpius. Albus looked at her curiously, but patiently waited for her to finish. "'I know another little boy out there who will like you, too.' That grabbed his attention. "'Really? A friend?' "'Maybe,' Hermione swallowed thickly. Green eyes were focused on her. It reminded her so much of Scorpius wanting to know more about his father. She held on to Albus a little tighter, and rested her cheek on the messy brown hair. "'Do you want to know about him?' "'Yes!' Then Albus shifted away, turning to her, and Hermione tapped her finger against her chin. Hmm, he's five, like you. Al's face broke into a grin while she found herself scrambling to recall little details about Scorpius. Admittedly, she didn't know him well. He likes books? I like books! Ruffling his hair, Hermione smiled softly. Yes, you do, love. But he's quiet. He doesn't talk. Why not? I don't know... It was an honest answer, if not a complete one. Al remained in pensive silence for several seconds longer than expected. Then he nodded like he'd made a decision. What is it? I can be friends. And there was that determination in his eyes. Oh, what do you know about being friends? Being nice and sharing and... and... Can we count now? Hermione laughed at the abrupt change of subject. Sure, but why so suddenly? Albus blushed. I want to get it right so I can show my new friend. There were moments when she found herself in awe of Albus Potter. It boggled her mind how anyone could make fun of someone so kind. Children were cruel sometimes, but not Al. Never Al. And so Hermione counted to twenty with him in French and German, something he'd learned in the nursery school he hated. And she even let him pick out a film to watch. Not that it mattered. Al fell asleep before the opening credits, tuckered out from his day. Harry returned to collect him right when Hermione finished making him a treat for the next day. His favorite, lemon cake with strawberries. She'd made enough to share with his siblings, but she was certain there was plenty for him. "'How was he?' Harry asked after he crept past his son. The telly in the corner of the room next to the fireplace was muted, and Al was still bundled under the blanket she'd covered him with earlier. "'Excellent as usual.' We made it closer today. Yeah? Harry's proud smile reminded her so much of Al. 
She nodded and handed him the container with the cake. Yes, just over a hundred paces closer. It's probably the biggest jump he's made since he started. But he's frustrated with himself. Hermione paused. I need to talk to you about something. Which made Harry grow serious. Not about Al, he's great. But I think I have a solution to your socialization problem. Oh? You're not going to like it. Hermione glanced over at the sleeping figure. But I think he needs a smaller space to meet a friend. One-on-one. -on -one. It may boost his confidence. And I have a suggestion. Then she smiled. Harry's suspicion was tangible. Hermione, the last time you looked like that, I ended up on an albino dragon. Which was incredibly fair. But did you die? Harry winced. I mean, technically... Then he looked around the room to ignore the well-deserved glare he'd earned from her. Finally, his acquiescence came in the form of a sigh. Fine. Who is it? Malfoy's son is his age. His recoil was so dramatic it was comical. Is that why you made a cake? Ginny said you made sad pie when I took Al to the planetarium. Partially. And it wasn't completely sad. It was blueberry. Lily's favorite. Harry squinted further. I already know what you're going to say, but if I could state my argument, I think it could be a good idea. Harry ran his hand through his hair three times, then huffed. Look, Dean already says he's a lot different from Malfoy, which is fine. Okay, I'm not going to say no because his dad is a wanker who's decided to be moderately tolerant in the last week. But do you honestly think either of us will survive a playdate, much less scheduling one? No, but she would pay all the galleons in her vault just to witness that conversation. Hermione was barely able to hold back her amusement at the mental picture. Al's already excited. If at all possible, Harry looked even more stressed. Oh, Merlin, I'm doomed. You're being dramatic. Hermione grinned too wide, but in all likelihood, he was right. Once Al latched onto something, he could never let anyone forget it. I could host. The look he gave her was long-suffering at best. I make no promises for a quick turnaround, but I'll discuss it with Jin. Then I suppose I'll approach Malfoy. He looked like he'd rather drink magma from the core of the earth. If it happens, you have to stay. Hermione just laughed. Don't threaten me with a good time. When Hermione stepped out of the flue, it was just after nine. Too late to be considered evening, but too early to be called night. A weird, nameless time between the two. That she had found herself in the Malfoy's house at such a time had long since lost its shock value. But the real surprise was that everything looked exactly the same right then as it did in five in the morning. Cold. Empty. Quiet. Devoid of character and identity. It wasn't a home. Just brick and wood. Held together by nails and plaster. Constructed into a nicely furnished dwelling. Albeit divided and that truth was easier to ignore in the early hours of morning, easier not to look at the lack of personality in favor of putting on the kettle and cooking, with Malfoy serving as an opinionated distraction in glasses. Easier still to ignore the plain walls when Narcissa complained about each meal while simultaneously enjoying the food, even during her irritable moments when she was snappish, when she stared at nothing. Even easier to ignore a home that was too sterile when Scorpius waited for her to move his glass from right to left and watched her until she waved goodbye like it meant something to him. Because it was beginning to mean more to her. There was life in those moments. Hope. She never saw it in the moment, too caught up in analysis and action. But she knew that, 
even in the darkness, hope was something that could be found anywhere. She just had to look for it, and keep finding it in each day, during each interaction. The same applied to her own life, to her own struggles, and Hermione did just that with the Malfoys, discovering tendrils of it in the most uncanny places, reaching for her. It breathed new life into her spirit and strengthened her bones. But there was also something to be said about the hope found in healing. It made the days easier for Hermione, who needed the tiny shreds of it found in those moments. Without hope there was no determination. Without determination there was nothing. Nothing wouldn't provide the inspiration Narcissa needed to fight to accomplish her goals. No matter how much Hermione disagreed with some of them, that wasn't her place, and so she persisted. Though crippled and barely visible, Hermione held on to each string of hope to see past the bleak grief, past the loneliness and pain, and past the family's problems. Problems that flowed like a river, on and on, in search of a sea it never found. All it did was gather sediments, which were slowly muddying the waters of her opinions. And those waters could only be purified by looking through the lens of a distance that separated them. Hermione sighed to the empty room. Tonight it felt extra cold and lonely, enough to propel Hermione in the direction of Narcissa's quarters. Just before she knocked, a slice of light farther down the hall drew her attention. Malfoy's office. The light meant that the door was open. He was home, and the fact that she found that odd made her cringe internally. Hermione had every intention of ignoring it and him. She planned to knock on Narcissa's door and be accepted into the room by Keating. But, as it often did, curiosity got the better of her. With light, careful steps, she made sure not to announce herself too soon on the creaking wood. An odd feeling accompanied her, building with each step down a dimly lit hall, keeping her close to the blank wall. Her mind began to spin in anticipation of what she might see, as dozens of scenarios played in her head. Malfoy and his glasses working, or reading, or scowling as he prepared to shut the door in her face. Maybe he would talk, or argue, or not even look up when he flexed the fingers needed to spell the door shut. Anything was possible with him, so Hermione prepared for it all. In the end, reality was different from anything she anticipated. What she happened upon was a sight mind-bogglingly normal, yet it still managed to blow all of her working knowledge of him out of the water. Malfoy stood beside the chair in front of his desk that faced the door with a hand on his chin. His emerald signet ring stood out amongst the black of his clothing. There was a frown marring his expression, not angry, but there was some sort of hesitance in it that gave Hermione pause. She was used to seeing surface emotions of cold annoyance and defensiveness coupled with confidence in that little unidentifiable bit of him that made her want to slap him, but this vacant expression of doubt? Indecision. This was new. Malfoy looked as if he were attempting advanced arithmancy with no parchment, an impossible feat. When Hermione stepped closer, when she stopped focusing on him and turned to look for what had given him pause, she finally noticed what, no who, was the reason behind the expression. Scorpius, wearing navy pajamas with gold snitches racing around, he had awkwardly fallen asleep in the oversized chair with his knees drawn to his chest and a familiar dictionary open, haphazardly pressed against the cushion, pages wrinkled. Hermione silently tisked at his bare feet, noting one was tucked under the other. He was probably cold. His little head rested against the cushion, hair sleep-must, and his thumb was in his mouth. He appeared to be sleeping peacefully, but it looked uncomfortable despite being adorable enough to make Hermione smile. 
Children had a habit of falling asleep anywhere. Would Malfoy leave him there? Perhaps not. Malfoy slowly and carefully extracted the dictionary from his son's grip, freezing when Scorpius shifted in his sleep as he brought his second arm around himself. Seconds passed before Scorpius settled again. Malfoy seemed to calculate each move before he made it. He quietly shut the book and placed it on his desk without making a sound. With that out of the way, he adjusted his glasses and returned to how Hermione had found him. Hand on his chin, mouth tight, brows furrowed. Pensive. He focused on Scorpius much like he did his crosswords. Then he moved. Only now, with the book gone, he wasn't nearly as confident, nor did he appear to have a clear plan. Hermione watched as he reached, paused, moved toward Scorpius again, then wavered. It was like a dance of contemplation, of uncertainty, one where Malfoy never hazarded too close, but didn't venture too far, either. What he was trying to do dawned on Hermione so suddenly she felt silly for not realizing it all along. Malfoy was trying to be careful, trying to plot, calculate, and solve one problem, his only problem. How could he pick up Scorpius without waking him? And that was hilariously ordinary and strange, and woefully human. Hermione bit her lip to push back a myriad of reactions that blended together, melted into shocked amusement, and then evaporated. She was currently standing in a reality where she found herself witnessing something that wouldn't have been a private moment for anyone else. But Draco Malfoy wasn't anyone. There was a wall around him that kept everyone out, a thick one built and reinforced with years of commitment. Seeing him awkwardly try to figure out how to pick up his sleeping son felt like an invasion of privacy. A step past a different sort of line. There was wading closer to the Malfoy storm, and there was launching herself into the eye of it. Not the most strategic or the wisest of moves. Rather than wait until he noticed her, she decided to leave Malfoy to it. But she didn't move, at least not fast enough to miss hearing him sigh right before crouching next to the chair. With a slowness tinged in nervousness, he hesitantly brushed Scorpius' tussled blonde fringe from his forehead in one swipe that didn't accomplish his mission. It shouldn't have made her pulse skip, but it did. The action was normal, Hermione rationalized. Malfoy was his father. It was just... different. Outside a smiling photo on his desk, she had never seen that softer side of him. She doubted many had. A sleeping child served as the instrument that smoothed the edges of him. That was... Hermione flexed her hands, not realizing how tense and stiff she'd gotten until she tore her eyes away to take those first steps back towards Narcissa's room. Exhaling the breath she hadn't realized she was holding, she ran a hand over her hair. Then she took a second breath, a third, and a fourth. Hermione knocked on the door, and Keating opened it almost immediately, forcing her to push back all thoughts of Malfoy, Scorpius, and the tickle in the back of her mind. She focused on the task at hand. It wasn't long after her walkthrough and update that she found herself reviewing notes Keating had already taken, catching words like hallucination and restless legs. How is she doing tonight? Just went to sleep not an hour ago after Draco inspired agitation. The woman shook her head, leaning into gossip, which meant that she was comfortable. She was right. She knew Keating wouldn't be the issue. Apparently he refused a second marriage date with a witch she liked, sent her into quite a state because he wouldn't tell her what he didn't like about her. Interesting, Hermione redirected a displaced thought. How did she tolerate the evening potion? Despite not being a fan of the taste, she took it well. The taste couldn't be helped. Do you want to see her readings for the day? 
She looks even, right on the baseline of where she should be that you've provided. Keating turned to retrieve the care plan Hermione had created, but Hermione reached out and rested her hand on the woman's arm. No, I have the master parchment in my office. I only came tonight to check on things and see how you were settling in. Nights aren't easy. Hermione cleared her throat. I couldn't help but glance at your notes. Hallucinations? Did she have an episode? Oh, Keating made a small gesture like it was hard for her to explain. No, she didn't. Sex and I agreed on this schedule because I'm better at handling her when she does hallucinate, which happens more at night, according to the research you included in your care manual, and also from experience. She had at least read that part, which was nice to know. Comforting because nights had been difficult for Narcissa, as well for her. That's true, yes, but why did you write it down? I've been around Narcissa long enough to know that when she's seeing something, she shouldn't. That was valuable information Hermione had little to no knowledge of. It doesn't always happen in the confines of her episodes, which are, as you know, very intense. Hermione agreed with a tired nod. Normally, her hallucinations don't agitate her, but when she sees something distressing, that's when I've witnessed more dramatic episodes. Do you know if she's wandered off yet? She's with security all the time when she leaves the house. They haven't reported anything to me. Good. Keating took a relieved breath. Narcissa's wandered off a few times over the last year, and I don't know what the trigger is for her. It's nearly impossible to find her, but Draco always manages to. Duly noted. Ah, well, as far as her wandering goes, the trigger could be anything. Even in the muggle form of the disease, the severity and path varied from person to person, and could still change once she had established a baseline. That much Hermione remembered in her extensive reading. She drilled that piece of information into her skull. How can you tell she's hallucinating? She looks off to the side, mainly, like she's looking at someone sitting next to her. Or at least, that's how I could tell before she realized I noticed such things. She hides it much better now. Hermione folded her arms, glancing over Keating's shoulder at the shut door where Narcissa was tucked into bed. Why would she hide it? I think whoever she sees is a comfort to her. Finding comfort in a hallucination was disturbing, but since it didn't bother Narcissa, she wouldn't even address it. You noted restless legs as well. Her evening potions are designed to combat this. They do, but I observed her while she was asleep not long before you came, and noticed that while her readings show that she was entering into a deep sleep, she was tossing and turning, and her legs are restless. I'll monitor her through the night and make some notes. Her statement was correct. Readings could only show so much. There was a human element of care that Hermione couldn't do by herself day in and day out. It simply didn't work. You should head home, Miss Granger. Keating gave her a matronly smile. You don't work weekends, but you do work exhaustive hours during the week, brewing and researching and monitoring her condition and cooking meals. I know you're not used to having help, but it's our job to handle the in-between. Go on and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Our weekly meetings are on Mondays, yes? Hermione was slightly mystified. Uh, yes. Okay, thank you. Have a good night. You too. Possibly clashing with Saks aside, she was happy to have the palliative care team. A shift in her original opinion on the matter. But time and experience had shown her that Narcissa's case was intricate and ever-changing. Caregiving was more than one person. It involved the sort of teamwork Hermione had never required with other assignments. Perhaps a change from the status quo wouldn't be so horrible. They had already provided a different perspective, more information, and fresh eyes. All things needed to build those metaphorical bridges. When Hermione shut the door behind her with a soft click, her eyes automatically went to where that light caught her attention for a second time. No, it was none of her business. She was finished there for the night, done working, 
well, sort of. She was headed home to prepare for tomorrow's brewing of Wolfsbane for Padma's patients, but all in all, her work at the Malfoys was done. Hermione repeated this over and over as she took step after step away from the light that called to her curiosity. No. Hermione made it all the way to the flue, had her hand on the container that was fully determined to, for once in her damn life, not be so bloody nosy, and... You're not supposed to be here today. Someone, okay, not someone, Malfoy, said from behind her in a low voice that sounded like distant thunder. She'd learned his voice like she'd learned most things, after studying. Not that it mattered. She hadn't heard him coming, so the fact that he was suddenly there startled Hermione so badly she knocked the container off the hearth. It was shattered. In one swift motion, she whirled around, words positioned for exit, and then the fire was snuffed out, like magic. Why? Because in his arms was Scorpius, and he was asleep. Hermione found herself wondering if he would move on so she could leave in peace, but time awkwardly continued to stretch on as she picked apart the sight in front of her. Whether it was because of how tired he looked, or because he just wasn't used to the act itself, she wasn't sure, but Malfoy looked incredibly stiff while holding him. One hand was on his son's back, the other under his bottom. Scorpius's head was nestled in the crook of Malfoy's neck, turned away from him as he slept on. Hermione couldn't tell if the visible tension rolling off Malfoy had to do with the fact that Scorpius was heavy, or because she was there. Maybe both? Silence quickly lost its appeal. I'll just... She trailed off as she turned to repair the broken flu powder container. After it was mended, Hermione placed it back where it belonged, and slowly turned back to the man who was still waiting. I have... Scorpius turned his head, exhaled a word that changed the entire course of Hermione's night. Mom. Hermione probably would have broken the container again had she been holding it so tightly, because she jolted at the sound of his soft, mumbling voice. Malfoy peered down at his son as best as he could, more confused than anything. She was nearly breathless, trying to regain control of her racing heart. Did he just... No. Mummy. Her inhale was so loud in the empty room, but she couldn't help it. The sharp stab of pain felt like a knife to the gut. It twisted further when she heard a panicked, choked-off sob come from the boy. No tears. He was dreaming. Try as she might, Hermione couldn't help her heart from aching for him without restriction. Her focus was strictly on the little boy, vaguely recognizing the sound of both her bag and wand hitting the floor no longer caring about either as she approached them slowly, carefully. She was so afraid to spook him. But Malfoy never so much as moved, never stopped looking at Scorpius, never lifted his head. He was just there. A blank husk, a part of the background in the scene before her, frozen to the spot. What little color he had drained from his face as a visible heaviness settled over him like a solid weight— it appeared to drag him down further when Scorpius kept pitifully calling for his mother, squirming in his father's arms, and breathing heavily while Malfoy just blinked over and over, unsure of what to do. He just held Scorpius as best as he could, looking overwhelmed and rigid and as lost as he was exhausted. When Hermione gripped his arm, Malfoy finally moved, if only to recoil from her touch. It became apparent by the deep, ragged breath he took that he had not been so shocked by her presence. Had he been able to move, he would have retreated, and the entire incident would have been another thing they didn't speak about. Not that Hermione would ever forget it. But as it was, she was there. 
Malfoy tried to say something, but Scorpius moaned again, and she felt her heart crumble all over again. Hermione took an uneven breath of her own, then did what came naturally. She helped them both. The shushing noise she made did nothing except make Malfoy tense so bad he seemed to vibrate, but Hermione remained as calm as she could, tentatively resting her hand on the top of Scorpius's blonde head. His hair was as soft as it looked. "'You're okay.' He instantly fell silent. After catching a glimpse of Malfoy's surprise, emboldened by success, Hermione got closer, ignoring his gaze in favor of continuing, running gentle fingers through Scorpius's hair and talking to him. Words her mother used to say when she was a child came to her slowly. "'As... as the day turns to night, keep your worries out of sight.' Scorpius steadily continued to settle. Close your eyes and go to sleep, for all the good times are yours to keep. There was more. Hermione was sure of it, but that was all she could recall. Malfoy carefully adjusted him, and she followed the action, keeping contact and connection as she stroked his hair and whispered nothing noises until he finally went still. Scorpius was asleep. The silence that followed was more than awkward, more than deafening, it was nearly unbearable, but Hermione waited it out as long as she could before taking a hesitant step back. Y you should take him to bed. Without a single debate, Malfoy did just that, but his steps were not as silent. Hermione didn't watch him go. She couldn't. Instead, she picked up her wand and bag, tossed them both onto the chair, and sat down on the sofa, feeling emotionally spent. But she didn't leave. Time passed as she waited for Malfoy to return. Five minutes turned into fifteen. By twenty, Hermione was on her feet, ready to find him. She knew it didn't take that long to put a sleeping child to bed, but Malfoy returned then, and she really took a look at him. Pale, haggard. Malfoy was exhausted in a way that looked just as soul-deep as physical, but his eyes still had that sharp quality to them, one that told her to tread very lightly. All she wanted to do was the opposite. Malfoy looked like he'd rather be anywhere else. Well, that made two of them. We should talk. A hundred different responses to his placid statement raced around in her mind, but the winner was only a single word. Where? They ended up in his office, with Hermione sitting in the same chair Scorpius had fallen asleep in hours before, only now it faced Malfoy, who sat behind his desk, paying no mind to the fact that she was hurling fire at him. He remained focused on his task sweeping silver eyes back and forth between writing on parchment and reading from probably the oldest book she had ever seen. So old he had to be delicate about turning the pages, which he'd only done once in the last thirty minutes they'd been sitting there. As a person with a deep respect for books, Hermione appreciated the care he took, but as someone who had her questions crafted, listed, categorized, and ready to be asked, well, she wasn't in the mood for games. It was late, nearly midnight, and Hermione was as drained, depleted, both mentally and physically. Unfortunately, that didn't mean her mind rested while she watched him work. Hermione had another look around, taking in things she'd missed on her first visit. A broom mounted to his wall, a framed Falmouth Falcon shirt. More books caught her attention, of course, but not on his wall-to-wall -wall shelves. There were eight books on his desk that looked just as old and dusty as the written word itself. The animal hide covers were so faded she could barely read the titles. Just as well. She had already tried reading the pages he appeared to be copying, no, translating, over a dozen times, 
but Hermione wasn't skilled enough to read his handwriting right side up, much less upside down. The letters were familiar, but they were arranged in a language she didn't speak. A convoluted thought tumbled into the doors of her mind, and she sent it back out. But it was slow to leave. Hermione found herself wanting to be able to translate him with the same ease that he converted the words in front of him. She had no reason in particular beyond being able to communicate with him in the only language he seemed to understand, his own. Malfoy worked on, but she could tell his energy was nearly sapped. His current appearance made the version of him from earlier that week, who'd taken two of the three potions with him when he left the room, seem healthy and full of vigor. There was a tremble in Malfoy's hands that he kept flexing through, kept trying to steady. He rubbed his eyes beneath his glasses, eyes that were heavier than ever before, now that she was paying enough attention to notice. He'd already nodded off three times while writing. Hermione pretended not to notice the simple truth that he was running low on fumes, and the whiskey that floated next to him wasn't helping matters. Why he insisted on pushing himself so hard, Hermione had no idea, but couldn't focus on that. At least not now. "'You like your silences just as tactical as Theo does, I see.' Malfoy's quill stopped abruptly. "'I actually find the way he starts conversations annoying as hell.' He sat down the quill, before finally looking up. Hermione nearly cringed at the dark circles under his eyes. He almost looked sick. "'Frankly, my head is pounding, and I was merely waiting for you to begin.' And just like that, her well-prepared list of questions vanished before her eyes, leaving Hermione at a loss for words. "'I don't know where to start.' "'It's obvious where you want to start.' Malfoy grabbed his floating whiskey glass and finished it in one go, taking a breath after quickly grimacing. "'No need to wait. Go on and tell me I'm a failure as a father.' That gave her pause. "'He wanted her to say that?' "'Actually, no.' expected it. The bait had been laid out so perfectly, but every instinct in her told her to leave it, so she did. I won't say that. I don't know your situation beyond what I see, but I will say that Scorpius needs help. Therapy at the very minimum. My department has a pediatric healer. I'll speak to my mother about it. He rubbed the stiffness from his jaw, or tried to, at least. There was a certain detachment in his tone that made her distastefully frown. Those were the words he said a lot said to placate, said to end conversations. She handles his daily activities for now. For now? Hermione managed to stifle all but one of her comments. A proud moment. Your mother? She blinked at the overtired man incredulously. Your same mother, whose treatment of him is just as rigid as his schedule? There was more Hermione wanted to say, but the hardening of his expression made it perfectly clear that she was about to lose her window of opportunity. She had to backtrack. Forget that. Because she absolutely needed to choose her battles carefully, and Malfoy was not himself right now. Let's start with what happened that hasn't happened before, as far as I know. Sometimes he wakes after he's gone to bed and sits in my office until he falls asleep. My mother can't stand it. But... He pinched the bridge of his nose yet again. I haven't... Malfoy stopped himself short of divulging more than he wanted to say, but she already had a good guess. Even if Scorpius had been upset in his sleep recently, Malfoy would not know because he wasn't there, and really hadn't been in the last week or so with his overnight canvassing trips to Wales. Hermione waited in the brittle silence as he poured himself at least two fingers, but didn't drink it. He just stared at the liquid before placing it on the table. Malfoy removed his glasses and sat them on top of the stack of books, massaging his eyes so roughly it made her cringe. 
Resting his elbows on the desk, he ran a rough hand through his hair multiple times and rubbed the back of his neck. It was surely stiff and sore. Meanwhile, the healer in Hermione was listing off symptoms to a condition she knew he already had. Mental exhaustion on top of physical strain. She leaned back in her chair. How's your stomach? Stop diagnosing me. The glare she earned was worth it. Stop giving me a reason to lace your whiskey with a sedative and go to bed. You're beyond exhausted, Malfoy, and I meant what I said before. You're no use to anyone like this. There, I have a lot of things I wish to discuss with you, but I can't say anything because you look like death. Malfoy yawned, irritated by the outward signs of his fatigue, but even his own emotions fell flat. Limp. For what you did for him. I suppose I owe you a favor. She frowned. You know, a thank you would have sufficed, but I don't turn down your help, favor or otherwise. Fine. If you'll excuse me, I have a port key to— Sorry, what? Judging by the way he looked, there was no possible way that he could even function another day without sleep. He looked a breath away from falling over. When's the last time you actually slept, Malfoy? His jaw clenched and Hermione rolled her eyes at his stubborn stupidity. But she took a patient breath. She could do this. You're not my patient, Malfoy. We've established that. But you're clearly not fit to do anything except sleep. I... And the words of her half-detailed argument died in her mouth when he stood, grabbed the floating whiskey glass, and took it with him across the room to the sofa in front of the fireplace. Hermione got to her feet when he sat, feeling a wave of frustration course like fire through her veins with nowhere to go. You do what you want, Malfoy. I'll just go. The battle between them looked like it would be one of attrition, and right now it was too close to call. Close the door on your way out. Hermione would have, really. She even opened the door to leave. But then she heard the glass on the wood as he set his whiskey on the coffee table, heard the sofa's low creak under his weight as he shifted. A noise that sounded something like resignation escaped Malfoy only moments before he laid down, kicked off his shoes, and gave in. There wasn't much Hermione could do to stop herself from drawing closer to him. The fact that Malfoy was already asleep and breathing deeply by the time she stood over him was the truest testament of his exhaustion. On his side and knees bent, he used his arms for a pillow. He was fully dressed but had no blanket for warmth. And while the sofa was just long enough for him to stretch to his full height, it wasn't a bed. Also, Hermione found the sight just as lonely as Scorpius looking out the window. She gave a mournful exhale for his inevitable aches and pains. You'll be hurting in the morning, for sure. Maybe she would leave a potion for him on the island. Not that he would take it, but perhaps a night on the sofa would make him more apt to comply. Definitely should sleep in a bed. It was a half-joke, one more that she said to herself than to the sleeping man. But Malfoy's mumbled words shocked her. They followed her like a shadow, growing heavier to the point where they ached. They stayed with her long after she found a throw blanket to cover him with. They waited for her while she turned the lights off and shut the door. They haunted her in the space between awareness and sleep, echoing over and over and over again. I can't. He's just a boy, pretending to be a wolf, pretending to be a king. Maurice Sendak